Yeah. I'm into that too, if that happens. <laughs> if we can all <laughs> it would unite <laughs> the world, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Somebody's gotta find Randy Quaid though. Oh I think he's living up there with Crab Master. Right? <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. You are now listening to the RF Generation Playcast. The Playcast is the place where the single banana and I, Grego Sadie One, discuss the monthly community playthrough games selected by us and shared by a community of gamers on RFGeneration.com and social media platforms like Twitter. This month, we are once again joined by an all-star guest from the RF Generation community. Bickman 2K, our resident Earthbound expert, joins us to discuss his favorite game of all time in the sought-after Super Nintendo Classic. Is Earthbound worth the staggering price it commands for an original copy, or are you better off going digital or even skipping it altogether? Stay tuned to find out. You can listen to the show on Apple Podcasts and Podbean, or just visit rfgplaycast.com. On Twitter, I'm at rfgplaycast, Rich is at the single banana, and our guest is at Bickman2K. Most importantly, be sure to log on to rfgeneration.com to discuss the games with us and have a chance to get mentioned on the show. Thank you as always for listening, and now, on with the Playcast.
I'm still looking this thing up. <laughs> <laughs> it's pronounced Legend of Kage. What's that? <laughs> Some inside joke that I have no idea what you're talking about. Legend of Kage for the NES. When we were kids, we all said Legend of Cage. Oh, okay. <laughs> Did we? I said Cage. That's what I'm saying. We were all saying it wrong. I don't even remember seeing that game when I was a kid. When I did see it when I was older, I was like, oh, yeah, Legend of Cage. That sounds awesome. <laughs> I remember playing that in the arcade. I actually really liked that game, but, man, it really sucks on the NES. <laughs> Kage. That was beautiful. You said that right as there was a thunderclap over my head. It was pretty, pretty epic. <laughs> I'm going to leave the thunder noises in for effect as well. For those listening to the call, Sean has a thunderstorm in his area right now. So we're hoping not to lose connection with him during this. But if we do, we'll fix it in post. Yep. Well, I had a bit of a COVID scare a few weeks ago. The family ended up testing positive for COVID. We were outside just kind of hanging out. Never went in the house or anything like that. Regardless, I uh, went and got tested, and let me tell you, the test I had was as bad as you can imagine a test to be. I really don't know what's going on. It seems like there's three different types of tests. There's the cheek swab that people are doing, and then there is the nose swab that's like an extended swab. I don't know what mine was. I think mine was the oil dipstick test because they took a (laughs) one and a half foot piece of plastic, like a zip tie with a brush on the end and shoved that all the way up my nose and sinus cavity and Mm. worked it around for 30 to 45 seconds. It is one of the most painful things that I have ever had to endure in my life. It was awful. So... If you're getting tested, you might want to go and ask what kind of test they're doing or do one of the drive-up tests because I hear that those are quite non-evasive. But uh, for whatever reason, mine was extremely evasive, but I did get my test results back in two days, and uh, I was negative, so that's uh, that was great. But we still quarantined for about 10 days. So let me ask you this, Rich. Mm-hmm. And don't answer this if you don't feel comfortable, but have you ever been tested for sexually transmitted diseases? I have not, no. Okay. That might be slightly more invasive. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm not Let me ask you this, Sean, and you don't have to answer it. Have you ever been tested for sexually transmitted diseases? I have, and I won't get too graphic, but let's just say there's a uh, an insertion yes. of a swab of where you don't want it, and they don't root around for 30 to 45 seconds, <laughs> thank God. <laughs> but um, yeah, that that's one of the more bizarre things I've ever gone through in my life. Ugh, can't I learned my lesson to not put myself in the position where I felt that I needed to do that, so... Man, our listeners must be really cringing right now. Oh, yeah, this is... We're off to a great start. (laughs) Glad I could be here to witness this. That's right. We've got a guest. Glad you could be here, Adam. (laughs) (laughs) 
Uh, for those who don't know and aren't members of RF Generation, our guest this month is Earthbound Superfan and one of the directors of RF Generation. He takes care of all of our IT stuff, does a fantastic job, good friend. I've met you twice, Adam, I believe, at uh, uh, yeah. two of the Retro World Expos. Great guy. Sent me the scope for my minister not long ago, which was awesome, and did the uh, ice climber swap for the five <laughs> screw. It's our good friend, Bickman2K. Welcome to the show, Adam. Thank you for having me. You guys have had quite the string of guests with Marissa from Mannequin City, and then Frank, who was wrote for Darksiders Genesis, and then the core cast, and now you're down to me, so... We saved the best for last. <laughs> yeah. And by the yeah. way, thanks for uh, making me already beat the show with like your first line. <laughs> hey, man, I just want to fit in around here. <laughs> I understand. That's my man. <laughs> if I don't get at least one like bald bull laugh out of this episode, then it's just not worth anything. That's true. <laughs> yeah. So our listeners will know that, Adam, I'm a huge fan of yours, and it's nice to finally actually speak to you as you know we've been messaging with each other for years and i've said it on the show before so it's not just that i'm saying it because you're here i think you're one of the more helpful people that i've ever met on the internet and your various different focuses of expertise have come in handy to me multiple times and if i ever have some random tech question or like even i've asked you like japanese culture questions or other <laughs> nerdy stuff and you've come back with the most useful and competent answers every time. So that's uh, something I really respect and appreciate about you. And it's really cool after all these years to finally have you on the show. So welcome aboard. Thank you. And what Sean was really saying is the other assholes that we're in contact with aren't as helpful. <laughs> <laughs> I can be a smart ass just like the rest of them, but... <laughs> Then I'll give you some good information after that. <laughs> there you go. That's fine, then. <laughs> well, speaking of our asshole friends, <laughs> good did any of them point out any uh, any corrections from the previous episode? No, I had no corrections from the previous episode, as noted by any of our friends or listeners, but I do think you might owe an apology to the Ramones in the Clash. No, I'm not walking <laughs> that back, man. I'm not walking that back. <laughs> I listened to the X-Ray Specs, and I did really enjoy that album. Oh, good. Uh, okay. Yeah. But it's hard for me to uh, say better than The Clash, better than The Ramones. I might give you the Sex Pistols, though. I'm not not a huge fan. A little bit overrated for me. And uh, if you want to give me a bit about that, please do so. I will say that calling out The Clash for a comparison was probably a bit of a stretch. They're one of the all-time greatest bands in general, not just punk bands. And the Sex Pistols are almost worthless to me. They they have a cultural impact, but yeah, something a lot of people don't realize is that most of their songs were written by the original bass player, Glenn Matlock, who got kicked out of the band because he was too much of a fan of pop music. But he wrote all their songs. It's not that they're great songs, and also if you listen to the songs, they all sound the same. They all have the same melody. It's it's really kind of crazy how much the Sex Pistols are known in the punk history mm -hmm. when they had literally one album that was written by the guy they kicked out of the band because he wasn't punk enough. <laughs> I think they're more of a, a legend than an actual good band. Yeah. Now, the Ramones, yeah, they're great, great catalog, but 
if I hate to say this and three chords. <laughs> yeah. Well, they, yeah, that's part of their formula. And if you've heard one Ramon song, you've heard most of them, yeah. let's say. <laughs> and not to beat a dead horse, but with x-ray specs, they have just this extra flavor to me that makes, and, and maybe it's a saxophone. I didn't even mention they have a, a sax player last month when I was talking about the album. Just has that little extra pizzazz, that extra panache that makes the whole album just sparkle to me. So I'm glad you checked it out, though. I appreciate that. Yeah. And let me ask you this. Since the saxophone is in the music, would you consider this ska as opposed to punk? No, because ska to me is in the chord progressions. Yeah. It's a little more uppity beat. Yeah. None of their music uses that clicky upbeat. And there's certain chord structures and chords that are used in reggae and ska that they're not using so definitely not yeah okay cool regardless of what you think about them if if somebody did like a nightclub type of richard cheese kind of you know redo of the sex pistols and didn't name their band the sax pistols then that'd just be <laughs> not even just a loss that has to be a thing already <laughs> <laughs> I used to work with my friend Tyler back in New Jersey. Shout out to Tyler. I don't know if he listens to the show, but me and him used to always joke about, let's start a band and name it this and just come up with clever punny band names. And one of them was, oh, let's start a band called Milwaukee Talkie. And we looked it up and there's like 50 bands called Milwaukee Talkie. (laughs) So I'm willing to bet there's a band called the Sax Pistols. Okay, since we're on that line, let's talk about creative names that we maybe named our bands in rock band or guitar hero did you guys ever have any creative names for that i always named i always named the band devil cock and i would get <laughs> sideways <laughs> looks from everybody but i thought it was hilarious is because you had hot and hard licks yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i did something uh, similar the first one i played my uh band name was butt juice <laughs> <laughs> And then I was playing another game in my save. It was Butt Juice 2.0. <laughs> so, so I kept that one. How about you, Adam? Any creative names? It's been so long since I've even played Rock Band that I don't even remember. And then I think my saves were on like a PS3 that had since died. And I haven't really played it much since then. So I don't even remember what I named my, my band in Rock Band. All right, you're going to have to dig that up, man, and let us know. <laughs> on the forums or something. Because yeah. I got to know. All right, guys. Well, since we're talking about music, let's go ahead. One more thing. Let me push up my glasses real quick because I do have a couple corrections, and I didn't mention them because I wanted to say them on the show. Okay. So, Rich, you kept saying sprites when I think you meant character models. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. One minor one was um, when they were talking about playing Smash TV with two controllers. That was the NES version, not the Super NES version. Okay. Uh, Super NES version used the D-pad to move, but it used the four, the ABXY buttons to fire in the in the eight directions. But the Smash TV on the NES, you, you had to use two controllers because you didn't have that many fire buttons. And then the last one's just totally pedantic stuff that really doesn't even matter. But when Josh was talking about the uh, recording consent, when Sean was going to record the call, the only thing about two-party, one-party consent is... When it's happening across state lines, which technically this is, the most restrictive law takes place. And so if somebody is in a two-party state, then you would have to get permission from everybody. But if everybody's in a one-party state, then it doesn't matter. 
That is oh, no. That's a really We're recording good recording. This out. one too. <laughs> <laughs> no disclaimer before I push the record button. Well, I hope it's inferred that this show is not for legal advice. Uh, if anybody heard the, <laughs> the previous episode and heard Josh uh, explaining that to me, so definitely appreciate the clarification there. Well, if people come to this show for the, you know, expertise in law and... Yeah, nutrition, medical advice. Yeah, we know. <laughs> <laughs> and thanks for being top soul this month, Adam. Appreciate that. Hey. Yeah, that's good. Three corrections in, in one. That's awesome. There comes a time in every girl's life when she's really got to ask herself. It's time to ask herself. She's steady. Do we want to steady? Since we were talking about music previously, let's go ahead and roll into the concert cast. Now, as many of you know, with COVID going on right now, Sean and I aren't getting to travel and go to shows. But we have been having fun with the concert cast. And last month we talked about bands that, barring breakup or deaths, that we would like to see in concert or like to have seen. If you didn't listen to that on the last show, be sure to download that and give it a listen. It was really good. But this month, we decided to do top three one-hit wonders who we feel have great catalogs but are primarily known for one song. Right, Sean? Yeah, you put it perfectly. I think about this a lot because one-hit wonders are such a unique phenomenon in music history, and I enjoy them and exploring different ones, and I find it pretty cool when there's a band that becomes a one-hit wonder, and you can dig a little deeper and find out that they're a really great band. Yes, it's better than a no-hit wonder, but in a way they get the short end of the stick. 
we can't do this topic without shouting out a YouTuber called Todd in the Shadows, who has a music-centered channel, and he does a series called One Hit Wonderland, and it's all about half-hour-long videos on all the one-hit wonders of you know modern rock and pop. And he has a section towards the end of each video called Did They Deserve Better? And that's primarily what I had in mind when I posed this topic to you guys is what are three bands that are considered one-hit wonders that it's worth looking at their albums and looking beyond that one hit? For example, like if <laughs> if I were to say uh, Tony Basil's Mickey, which was a one-hit wonder, she actually has some pretty cool synth pop albums from the 80s that are worth checking out. No, she's not on my list, but I'm just using that as an example. Most, like 99.9% .9 of people have never heard another Tony Basil song besides Mickey, but I'm sure there are people out there, including myself, who think some of her other music is definitely worth checking out. I think that was just your sneaky way, again, of getting in four picks. <laughs> I actually, uh, <laughs> I have a few honorable mentions, and one is one that you and I talked about, so I don't know if it's going to be on your list, so I'll save it if we do honorable mentions later on. It's on my honorable mention list. I didn't use it. Okay, so, cool. Yeah. Well, we'll get to that. So do you want to you go like around one by one this time? Yeah, I think so. I think it keeps it a little interesting. Yeah, I think that's a good idea. Well, how about let's letting our uh, guests go first, then? Yeah, good idea. Adam, give us your number three. I went with T-Rex. I mean, the big hit in the U.S. was Bang a Gong, but they had a few other songs, that, like 20th Century Boy and Teenage Dream, that I really enjoy as well. They were also big in the U.K., but they were just a one-hit wonder, effectively, in the U.S. Um, but they kick-started the glam rock era. That was you know right before... David Bowie and Ziggy Stardust and, and all that kind of stuff, too. So I think that they have a pretty diverse set of work, but, you know, everybody just kind of thinks of Bang It Gong, I think. Mm -hmm. Nice. Good choice. Yeah. Nice pick, man. All right. Sean, you want to go next? Uh, sure. I'll go next. So my number three, I made a last minute change because I had another band in the number three spot that I kicked out to be an honorable mention because I have a good story that goes with this one. So my pick for number three is the band Not A Surf. They had a song in the late 90s called Popular, which came out on their 1996 album High Low. They're actually still around. They have nine albums. Their ninth album came out this year, and I was actually just listening to it this morning. But I would say the whole album that Popular is on called High Low is a really good album. The next album they made was called Proximity Effect, and that's actually one of my favorite albums of all time. It's just really good front to back, all kinds of great songs on it, great songwriting. The dynamics of the album are all over the place in a good way. It's just one of those like indie rock albums that kind of goes to the next level. And the story I have is that um, Not A Surf was based out of Brooklyn, they still are, and in the late 90s, when they made the Proximity Effect, they went around playing all these like kind of small venue punk shows in New Jersey, which is where I was growing up and going to punk shows all the time. So I actually saw Not A Surf a bunch of times when they were doing these shows. And it was funny, the first time I saw them, 
was at a show that was just loaded with people who came to see the band that did the song popular, right? So I remember towards the end of the show, the end of their set, the entire crowd of 250 teenagers stuffed in a firehouse break room or whatever it was, just chanting, popular, popular. They didn't play it, which is fine. They were very (laughs) polite and they were all like smiling about it. But it was just like this crazy, funny, uncomfortable-ish kind of situation. But the other story I have about them was I was chasing around this girl. I won't say her real name, but I'll call her Zoe because the situation I had with her reminds me of the movie 500 Days of Summer, which I <laughs> used I used to think that this was just this miserable, worthless movie. But when I actually understood what it's actually about, I appreciate it a lot more. I don't want to go down too much of a rabbit hole, but... And I wish I knew the YouTuber who did the video about that movie. The movie is about the Zoe Deschanel character telling Joseph Gordon-Levitt the truth for the entire movie, which is that she's not interested in him. And it's about him not listening and not seeing exactly what she's putting on the table. (laughs) You know what I mean? So once you understand that, the movie becomes much more enjoyable. But that's exactly the situation I was in with this girl that I'll call Zoe. (laughs) So (laughs) I took Zoe to go see not a surf one night. And she says, can I bring my French teacher? And I was like, uh, okay. So (laughs) she brought her French teacher who was this younger lady to the show. And we were at the merch table after not a surf played talking to the guys in the band And it turns out, as the French teacher and the singer, Matthew Cause, were talking to each other, it just came out that they were both fluent in French. And they really hit it off, and they ended up dating for a while. They actually kind of struck (laughs) up a relationship and ended up dating each other for a while. So that's just a funny story that happened to me on the sidelines of my life. And uh, just an interesting footnote out of shows that I've gone to. That was one of the more interesting things that I've ever had happen to me. That somebody I went with ended up dating the singer of the band that I went to go see. (laughs) But yeah, Not A Surf. Great band. Like I said, they have nine albums. I'm not familiar with all nine of them, but I've never heard any of their music and didn't like it. You know, So definitely worth checking them out. Well, my number three pick... I would say is a one hit wonder, but they have had several really, really good albums. In 1993, they put out the album Transmissions from the Satellite Heart, and it had the song on it, She Don't Use Jelly, and that is The Flaming Lips. I have seen them twice. I saw them once locally, and then my friend and I drove nine hours to Cleveland to see them open up for Beck and then also play as his backup band on the Yoshimi versus the Pink Robots and Sea Change tour. Yoshimi versus the Pink Robots and the Soft Bulletin, Soft Bulletin 1999 and Yoshimi 2002 are two of the best albums that I've ever heard. Now, sometimes the Flaming Lips will put out an album and sort of go off the deep end, and so I can't say that their entire catalog is worth your time or worth a listen, but those two albums and possibly a handful of others are worth checking out. And if you ever have a chance to see these guys in concert, you have to go because it is like one 
giant birthday party. They usually dress up in suits. There's huge blow-up balls that are going around, confettis being shot out from cannons, and it is just a fantastic time. I heard the album they did with Miley Cyrus is really good. I don't know. No? Did okay. they do one with her? They did. It's, uh, <laughs> it's actually supposed to be really, really bad. I was kind of making a joke there. I, I, didn't, <laughs> I didn't realize you weren't familiar with it. <laughs> Fail. They did an album with Miley. It's supposed to be really bad, but I haven't heard it. Yeah, they've kind of gone off the deep end, but I would say that Yoshimi, Battles of the Pink Robots, and Salt Bulletin are just fantastic albums. Yeah, I'm not a like a massive fan of them or anything, but I've heard Yoshimi and I do like it a lot. Yeah, both of those you can listen all the way through. So if you do like Yoshimi, do check out Soft Bullet and I think you'll enjoy it. Sweet. All right, Adam. All right, for my number two, I went with Devo. Ah, good pick. Awesome. Again, everybody knows Whippet. Who has not heard that song in some form or another? But they've done a lot of uh, different genres of music, even among kind of the same album. They've done a very kind of Devo style of um, Rolling Stones' Can't Get No Satisfaction. Love it, man. It's a great cover. I think I like it better than the original, actually. As odd <laughs> as that sounds. Yeah, it's, it's got that just that quirkiness to it, but it's still just a, a great rendition of it. They did a version of The Witch Doctor for the Rugrats movie, which, again... It sounds like it's just kind of out of left field, but Mark Mothersbaugh, who's the lead singer for Devo, he had been composing music for the Rugrats cartoon, and then they ended up doing the movie, and so that's where that, I think, cover came from. But then um, they've got a bunch of just you know other great tracks like Uncontrollable Urge, Girl You Want, Beautiful World, Marry Something to You, which is just a hilarious Christmas track, and then off their, I guess, their most recent album of 2010, uh, the single called Fresh. Again, they're not necessarily for everybody, but I think that between all of the different tracks, I mean, I think that people would find plenty of things that they would enjoy throughout the entire discography. Yeah, I totally agree, man. I love Devo, and uh, anytime I find a Devo album on vinyl, I immediately pick it up because you're just always in for a treat. They're a lot of fun. I own a discography at one point. I think it was maybe three CDs, and uh, just always really, really enjoyed them. And they also had a song on the Revenge of the Nerds soundtrack. Yeah, he did a lot of uh, the Revenge of the Nerds 2 soundtrack as well. Yeah. He did uh, four Wes Anderson movies. Mm -hmm. Um, He did some music for Pee-wee's Playhouse. So, I mean, just him by himself, kind of like how Danny Elfman was in, you know, did stuff, but now he's doing soundtracks for Family Guy and all kinds of other things. Mother's Ball does a lot of stuff, too. If you just kind of watch stuff, you'll you'll see his name popping up quite a bit. Yeah, and if you have kids and you've ever watched this show, Yo Gabba Gabba, he actually pops (laughs) up on that as Mark the Artist. And it's kind of Mm -hmm. funny. He teaches kids how to draw things, and uh, it's just crazy knowing that that's Mark Mother's Bow that's uh, doing that. So, yeah, he's still going strong and and putting out a lot of content. Great pick, man. All right, Sean? All right, for my number two, I'm going to go with the band Semisonic, who are known mostly for their song Closing Time, which I think everybody knows. It is probably one of the more overplayed songs of our generation. (laughs) I will admit that. I happen to really like the song still to this day, and I also love this band. They have three albums. They formed in the early 90s. Their debut album was called The Great Divide in 96. Closing Time was on an album called Feeling Strangely Fine in 1998. And then their final full-length album so far was called All About Chemistry in 2001. 
I just found out doing a little research that they've released their first song in about 19 years with a single called You're Not Alone, and they're going to release an EP later this year. So that's actually really cool to find out. I would say the third album is a little bit of a drop off, but those first two albums are really, really good front to back, especially Feeling Strangely Fine. They did have a a little bit of a minor follow-up hit with uh, Singing in My Sleep. Some people may remember that song as well. But they're still just easily classified as a one-hit wonder for closing time. But again, kind of like the Not A Surf thing, it's a very colorful indie rock album with a lot of piano and jazz influences and pop. They're a really good band. And uh, the lead singer, Dan Wilson... He has been very successful as a songwriter for other artists. He's written for the Dixie Chicks and he's written for Adele on like huge singles that they've had. So he's been pretty successful outside of Semisonic, but I think they're a band that just deserves more love for their entire catalog. Have you ever watched the YouTube video of the lead singer talking about the song Closing Time and what it's really about? I don't think I've seen an interview with him, but I've heard it explained that he wrote the song about his child being born. Yes, and you will never listen to the song the same way again. But watch the YouTube video because he's performing in front of a college crowd in an auditorium. He's doing an acoustic set and he's playing the song, but he stops in the middle of it all the time to like (laughs) throw in little funny quips and stuff. It is hilarious and it's so worth your time to check out that video. So I highly recommend that. That's awesome. And while you're on YouTube looking for that, you can look up me and my friend Steven doing a cover of Closing Time where he was on keyboard and I was on guitar and I sang it. Now, if anybody can find that, you get a cookie. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> hey, I've got a rap song on YouTube, so if you can Ooh, find that. Now that's some digging I want to do. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> I've worked in IT long enough. My Google food is strong. I'm going to hopefully find both uh, of those I don't things. think you're going to find this one, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> it's very deep in the interwobs. <laughs> uh, all right. So for my number three pick, I picked a band that I've just recently gotten into in the last few years. They are a British metal invasion band. As you know, bands like Sabbath, Iron Maiden, and Judas Priest came over to the U.S. and were big hits with the metal community. But there was another band known as Diamond Head who was less successful, and they put out an album in 1980 called Lightning to the Nations. Now, as far as having a hit, they really never had a hit. However, Metallica covered their song Am I Evil on the B-side to their Creeping Death single in 1984, and they also re-released the same track on Garage Incorporated later on, which was an album of covers. The album Lightning to the Nations is one that is constantly in my CD player in my car. It is fantastic, and if you love 80s metal, it's a must-own. A few of the quality tracks on there are The Prince, a track called Suckin' My Love, and uh, another song called Sweet and Innocent, but I can't recommend the entire album enough. It is fantastic. Did you say Suckin' My Love? I did say suck in my love. <laughs> my kids love that song, oh, too. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> but when my kids are in the car and I'm singing it, I'm saying stuck in my love. Okay. So, you know, so that they can't figure out what the words are. 
Nice. <laughs> All right. What is your number one pick, Adam? So I had warned you guys a little bit that this was going to be a slight stretch on the one-hit wonder. They never hit top 40. They hit number 46. But it hit number two on the alternative and number four on the rock charts. And it is the cult. Oh, okay, yeah. Firewoman was kind of their biggest hit, but they've had just a lot of great tracks. I like the entire Electric album. I can you know, listen to that pretty much all the way through. Oh, yeah. Uh, Love Removal Machine is probably my favorite track by them. She Sells Sanctuary is great from their uh, Love album. Their album Ceremony, which came out after Sonic Temple, was very heavily like Native American type of inspiration. A lot of those types of instruments that were kind of intertwined with it as well. There's so many just good tracks that they've had, but I don't tend to hear them talked about a whole lot. And that's kind of why I wanted to bring them up. They were on the cusp of being a technical number one hit, but I think they've had a lot of great hits and they've had a lot of stuff just kind of featured in movies and stuff. So you might have heard some of their songs, but not necessarily known who it was. Ian Asbury also, who was the lead singer, also had filled in uh, when the uh, the door started touring again. He was singing for him. So, yeah, that would be my number one. All right. Good pick. My wife is a huge cult fan. Nice. I have heard some of their songs on the radio, but I was never a big fan until she started putting them on mixtapes for me. Because... Mm-hmm. We've been dating so long that, yes, we used to give each other <laughs> mixtapes, and uh, I really, really miss those days. Great pick. All right, Sean, your number one pick. All right, so my number one pick has a little bit of nostalgia to it, a little bit of, well, it has a lot of nostalgia because it's a hell of a song, but what I found out later on, way, way, way later on, is that it's a hell of an album. And I found this out from my friend Jesse when he was alive. He told me all the time, you got to listen to this whole album. You know the song, listen to the whole album. I'm telling you, it's hot fire from start to finish. I finally listened to him, and of course he was right. The band is Len. The one hit is Steal My Sunshine. (laughs) And the album is called You Can't Stop the Bum Rush from 1999. Now, if you don't know the song, I mean, everybody knows the song. If you steal my sunshine, it's such a good song. Yeah, we we didn't need that. What'd you say? (laughs) We didn't need that. (laughs) Well, we had a guest on who had never heard Rihanna's Umbrella before, so I I don't know how how far I need to go in explaining. Especially, it's from the late 90s, and we have a lot of younger listeners, so they might not have caught this. But anyway... Uh, This is a Toronto, Ontario group that they started as a punk band and then just kind of went into hip hop and funk and pop, almost like the same trajectory as the Beastie Boys, basically. The core of the band is this brother-sister team of Mark and Sharon Costanzo, and I think their vocal deliveries complement each other perfectly. And I think Sharon has just such a sweet, smooth lovely voice on all of these songs especially steal my sunshine which everybody knows but as you listen to this album you can't stop the bum rush it takes you on this journey and and they throw genres at you <laughs> so there's a bismarck key feature so there's this weird like funky bismarck key song on there then they have this like synth pop roller skate rink type of song that would have been right at home in like the early 80s and I can just see neon lights flashing in my head as the song goes. And then they have this weird like craft work ripoff complete with like German spoken robot sounds and stuff. 
they just really go all over the place. And then later on in the album, there's more indie rock fun, like with guitars and stuff. It's such a cool album. And I, it's like Steal My Sunshine is the first song on this album. And every time I queue up just that song to listen to it, I end up listening to the whole album because it's so good. And of course, it reminds me of Jesse. And, you know, he had really good musical taste. And uh, I wish I had listened to him. 20 years ago when he told me about this rather than you know waiting until eight years ago or whenever it was i finally gave it a, a full listen but great album what a hell of a song and what a hell of an album that's len with you can't stop the bum rush from 1999 yeah kind of crazy man and coincidental but uh my wife and i play jeopardy on the alexa every day and that was actually one of the questions this week. Like, what was the name of the song by Lynn? Huh. We missed it, of course, because, <laughs> I, you know, I, I just could not remember what song. I'm like, I've never heard of this band. And then when they said Still My Sunshine, I was like, oh, my gosh, yes, that was such a huge hit. I do remember that song. So, yeah, now it's something I'll never forget, you know? Yeah, especially because you heard me sing it. <laughs> When you mentioned Bismarcky, I was just thinking, I was like, that would be a weird mashup. Like, you got what I need if you steal my sunshine. Like, that be odd. That would actually be kind of good. Yeah. I forgot to mention <laughs> Curtis Blow is actually on the album. So they got Bismarck and Curtis Blow on, on this album. So if that's not uh, selling points enough to go check it out, I don't know what is. All right. Well, Bismarcky, another one-hit wonder. And also... <laughs> He appears on the kids' show, Yo Gabba Gabba as well. Has his own segment. Nice. <laughs> Bringing it all back, man. You know? Yo Gabba Gabba, they have, like, so many of those kind of folks in there because, um, I can't remember. Did Aquabats do the theme song for Yo Gabba Gabba? Yeah, Aquabats are actually in charge of uh, the entire show. Okay, yeah. I knew they were pretty heavily involved with it. Yeah. If you've never watched the Aquabat action hero show that they have, it's worth a watch, even if you don't have kids. It's so wacky, man. I love it. So, Rich, what's your number one one-hit wonder who deserves more attention? All right. So, my one-hit wonder is a band from the 80s. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> this was a band that was formed out of two guys from Frank Zappa's band, the drummer Terry Bozio and Warren Cucurulo, who plays guitars, and I'm probably butchering that name. Terry was actually married to Dale Bozio. She actually fronted this band. And I would put this group up against Madonna any day. I know that's a big stance, but Missing Persons is one of the best bands that I have ever listened to. And I had heard their song, Words, which was their big hit. The album that that appeared on, Spring Session M, is one of the best albums I've ever heard. Some notable tracks, Walking in L.A., Destination Unknown, Windows. The hits just keep coming. That album is one that I can listen to from front to back. And actually was so good the first time I heard it. Anytime I find a missing person's album on vinyl, I immediately buy it. And I've never been disappointed. Their guitar player, Warren Cucurulo, is known to be one of the best guitarists out there by a lot of people in the music industry. His work with Missing Persons and Dale Bozio's voice is just incredible. 
Sean, you would probably like this a lot because her voice is really punk, but they have a very pop beat and sensibility to them. I would almost say they're sort of like a pop punk band, but it doesn't sound like anything we got in the 2000s. Great album, great band. Yeah, that's a good pick. I do know some of their songs, but I've never listened to any of their albums like start to finish. I'm curious, have you ever heard the Smashing Pumpkins cover of Destination Unknown? Uh, I don't think I have, no. Yeah, it's a pretty good cover. I mean, as far as covers go, it's it's a decent one. You should check it out. I'll certainly do that. Awesome. Well, I actually have one honorable mention. It's a band I kicked out of my list to put Not A Surf in. And the band is Super Drag, and they had a song called Sucked Out. This must have been a minor hit because I played it for my wife and she didn't recognize it, but also came out in 1996. It was a big like MTV, like the video got played over and over. It was one of their, I think they used to call them buzz clips, like these alternative rock singles that they would just play all the time. The album Regretfully Yours is the album that this song was on. But they're a band that is like one of the most consistent bands I've ever come across. Just pick any of their albums and start listening to it. They really don't miss. All of their songs are good. All of their albums are good. And uh, man, they deserve way more recognition than just having a minor alternative rock hit. Really great band. Rich, I'll kick it to you for your honorable mentions because I know you got one that we're both big fans of. Yeah, the one that Sean and I have mentioned on the show several times, actually, and that we're big fans of is Flock of Seagulls. They had a big hit called I Ran, but every album that I've listened to by them is fantastic. Space Age Love Song is one of my all-time favorite songs, and my daughter had asked me to put together like a top 10 list for her of my favorite songs, and that one's definitely going on there. It's a great song by a band that's put out some great stuff, right, Sean? Yeah, definitely. In case anybody didn't catch it when I said it on the show, my analogy was if Flock of Seagulls didn't have the tacky music videos and the hairstyles, and if they weren't known for that, they would be a cult fan favorite on par with Joy Division and Echo and the Bunnymen. That's how good I think their music is. Totally agree. My other honorable mention, I think this one could be argued that this person's not a one-hit wonder, but one of my favorite artists of all time is Beck. Of course, known for the song Loser off Mellow Gold. And I know locally, two turntables and a microphone got a bit of play, but I'm not sure how widespread that was across the nation. That song's called The Where We had that in the Midwest. Okay. (laughs) If it made it to Kansas, then it it was probably going to be played a lot everywhere else. So. Where it's at, Devil's Haircut was great, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Odalay's a fantastic album, but mm-hmm. every album I've heard by Beck is non-miss. And of course, he won Album of the Year for Morning Phase several years ago. And then the final band I have, and uh, Sean, you may be familiar with this band, and maybe even you, Adam, if you guys are big Nirvana fans, that band is the Vaselines. Their biggest hit was Jesus Wants Me for a Sunbeam, which Nirvana did on that Unplugged album, which I will argue to this day is Nirvana's best album. Nirvana also covered a few more of their songs that many people may not know about. Molly's Lips and Son of a Gun were all Vaseline songs. This is a Scottish duo and heavy influences of Nirvana. I used to have the best of the Vaseline's album, and it was one that was on constant rotation in my car in college, and uh, a band really, really worth checking out. 
technically not a one-hit wonder on their own, but I do feel like Nirvana sort of brought them to the forefront at that time with Jesus Wants Me for a Sunbeam. Yeah, that's a good pick. I used to listen to them a ton because I got into anything that was even remotely connected to Nirvana because I was obsessed with Nirvana. So I I definitely got into the Vaselines for a while. Great band. Should we go ahead and roll into pickups? Hell yeah. Adam, what are a few pickups you've had recently? Since all of this quarantine stuff has been going on, like I've been working from home since March, and I kind of expected to really not be getting many pickups. But, you know, I've been hitting GameStop's deal a day online, and Best Buy's had some decent deals and stuff for just curbside pickup. And so I picked up a few things that we're not expecting to. Just finding deals. I'll just kind of keep it limited, at least to the band when we were playing the game. There was a little yard sale that was local, and we were kind of going in the area anyway. I've got a copy of the uh, Mist 10th Anniversary DVD Edition for PC for 3 bucks, A third-party Switch controller for 3 bucks, A couple little card games and stuff. We took a road trip down to Mississippi and found a local stores down that way. And I found Mother 1 on vinyl. I'm not really a vinyl collector, but it's... The Mother series, so I had to get that. And then the very next day, uh, Rich, you sent the link about Ship to Shore having a sale. And so I ordered the Mother 2 vinyl the very next day. The Both of those have showed up. We picked up Maneater on the Xbox One. You are a shark that is trying to eat men. We've been having some kind of stuff in the basement where we haven't been able to go down there a lot. So it haven't been fired up yet, but it looks like a lot of fun. Got a little Switch fighting stick, uh, which is pretty slick. 
Bloodstained and Xenoblade Chronicles to the Golden Compass. I found a Japanese copy of Vertical Force for the Virtual Boy. Picked up a copy of Super Chase HQ on the SNES. I found, I couldn't believe it, Half Price Books had this super rare piece in the case, and I got a, uh, a copy of Terraria on the PlayStation Vita? Yeah. Am I saying that right? I think so. <laughs> Your Italian I think it's very good. <laughs> <laughs> and then just recently, I picked up one of the Neo Geo Mini arcade cabinets. I know, Sean, you're a fan of the modified console. I hacked that thing almost immediately. It's got three times the number of games on it. Hell yeah. And I was hoping to have one more pickup show up before today. It's got a couple of USB-C ports on it for controllers. So I picked up a pair of controllers for it. They were on Amazon for like 20 bucks, which is way cheaper than anywhere else. And so I've got a full decked out Neo Geo Mini that's going to be ready to roll downstairs on the big screen. Cool, man. That's awesome. Good stuff. I have one pickup on the way. I'll talk about it in a minute, but uh, I'm still selling stuff like crazy, which has been still a lot of fun. And uh, I tweeted the other day that I had to take a break because my 50 free listings on eBay for the month had been all used (laughs) up, which I've never done before. I had to wait about a week until August 1st to get another set of what I thought was going to be 50. And when I got up on August 1st, I had 200 free listings for the month. So I was like, (laughs) oh yeah, let's rock and roll. So I'm still working on that. Again, like having a good time, taking these games that have just been sitting on the shelf, gathering dust that I'm never going to play and just literally breathing new life into them, cleaning them up, testing them putting them in the hands of people who maybe they'll flip them or sell them. I've sent games to game stores, you know, a lot of game stores get their stock off eBay and that's fine too. It'll eventually end up hopefully in the hands of somebody who will play it and enjoy it more than I will. So I'm still working on that. And I want to shout out the community uh, because my last blog article was just kind of a stream of consciousness talking about how I came to the decision to start selling off at least a majority or more than half, let's say, of my video game collection, which is the ultimate goal. And if I do say so myself, it's one of the better articles I've written in a long time, which goes to show if you actually work and like try to write a good article, you'll, you'll, <laughs> you'll come out with something good if you put a little effort into it. Cause I've been doing these like stupid little capsule movie reviews and they don't get any traction because they don't deserve to cause they're not good. But This article, I got so many long-form responses in the form of the comment section, and uh, it was so awesome just reading through people who are kind of going through the same things that I'm going, and I won't name names, you can go look, but like one person actually said they have like anxiety sometimes walking past their game room because of the burden that it puts on them, and it's like, yeah, I've felt that before, and then... Some people have talked about their strategies for like eliminating certain collections and, you know, how they go about choosing what to sell and stuff. And it really opened my eyes to new things. And then there were some people who said, oh, this is cool that you're doing this, but this is not for me. I'm still trying to grow the collection. And, you know, that's awesome, too. So I got all kinds of people who were willing to take the time to read my article and and leave awesome, awesome comments. So I just wanted to shout out all the people who chimed in with their feedback on that one because it was really a a good deal of soul searching and kind of pulling that out of my heart and putting it pen to paper, so to speak, to get that out there. So I appreciate everybody's feedback. 
I do have one score, as I teased before. It's not here yet, but I unfortunately, I had to buy a new TV because go figure the cheap Chinese TV I bought two years ago crapped out and it has a big blue line going through the middle of the screen. And uh, so I'm replacing it with another cheap Chinese TV, which will probably crap out in a year or two and I'll just keep getting. <laughs> I hope not. I have the same one. TCL's Japanese, man. Oh, okay. That's good to know. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so I, I ordered a TCL 55-inch Roku TV. Came highly recommended from everybody, including you two guys and, you know, all our friends in the chat and some of my coworkers. It seems like it's an okay deal. So, yeah, good budget TV. Yeah, so I'm looking forward to getting that because I got to tell you, with this big blue line going down the screen, it has totally quashed my desire to play video games or watch anything besides YouTube on it. It's really hard to explain. It might sound like a like a weird like prima donna thing, like oh, I can't play. It's just this little tiny blue line, but it goes down the entire screen, top to bottom, and it just is too much of a distraction to do anything other than watch YouTube videos. So I hate that I had to buy a TV at this point in time, but also it was very cheap, and I'm looking forward to hopefully rekindling some of my passion for actually playing video games and maybe watching some anime and watching some movies on it. So I'm <laughs> um, excited about that. But yeah, no game pickups again this month, but I thought I'd throw in this TV that's on its way. Cool, man. Well, how about a old shout out to your buddy Rich for letting you hump his wallet? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sean's been killing me, and uh, yeah, I mean, I mentioned some pickups last month, and I even have a pickup from him this month, and more stuff on the way to myself and my neighbor, who's a listener of the show. So um, yeah, good stuff, and uh, appreciate it, Sean. Thanks for the deals, man. Yeah, no, I appreciate your business. You're helping me. Anytime I can sell to somebody that's not on eBay, I'm saving in fees, and I know if something happens, you're not going to you know, try and screw me over somehow or reverse the paypal or give me negative feedback like i know we can work it out if something strange happens like as happened with our last transaction mm, yeah and what's happened with one of my transactions recently which i'm going to talk about in my pickups i've been picking up a lot of stuff for the switch I picked up battle princess madeline which from what i can tell is a sort of ghost and goblins type game I picked it up at a new video game store that actually just opened about two miles from me. So that's pretty cool. Crazy that they're opening during these times. I don't know if they're going to make it. It's in an area that doesn't get a lot of foot traffic, but best of luck to them. And I do hope that they stay open because it's always nice to have another good retro game store. I picked up a copy of Burger Time Party for the Switch, and I don't think a lot of people know about this game, and I even went to GameStop, and they didn't have any record of it, and I was like, yeah, it's physical, it's on the Switch, because I found it on eBay, and I've seen it on Amazon. Imagine playing Burger Time with graphics like Cuphead, and so it's that same sort of art style, where the eggs and the pickles and the uh, hot dogs are after you, and they have those like kind of mean, like old school cartoon looks on their faces. It's a lot of fun. I've always been a big fan of Burger Time, and this is just kind of a new spin on the game. 
I picked up a copy of Katamari Damacy Reroll. So good. It's a series that I've recently introduced to my kids, and they love it, and just having a lot of fun with it. It's very family-friendly, and just really, really cool games. I also picked up a copy of My Friend Pedro, which... I had to pick up. It's got a banana on the fucking cover, right? I mean, I had to get this game. So, um, yeah, I watched some reviews of it before I picked it up, and our buddy Duke Togo said it's an excellent game. He's beating it. It's kind of an action shooter, and I'm happy to add that to my collection. Also picked up a copy of Super Meat Boy on the Switch. As you all know, I'm not really the kind of guy who likes to download games, and I've just heard so many great things about Super Meat Boy and feel like it's basically an indie classic and really wanted to add that to my collection. Limited Run actually released this in Best Buy, and so I was able to get a copy of that. And then the final Switch game I picked up is an independent game called Tiny Barbarian DX. It is sort of like a side-scrolling Contra-S game, except you're a barbarian with a sword. And there's these boss battles and such. And um, I picked it up at my local game store. It was fairly cheap, so uh added that to the collection. I think I'm up to about 15 Switch games now. But there are several that I'm still looking for. One that comes to mind, I would love to have a copy of Golf Story, and I wish I would have bought that when it was up for sale, even though I didn't have a Switch, because the price of that has really shot through the roof recently. That's such a great game. However you're going to play it, it's such a great game. Yeah, I've heard nothing but great things about it. And speaking of Nintendo Switch, as I mentioned on, maybe it was the last call, we had a Switch Lite in our house, and I had gotten it for my son's birthday on Flag Day, June 14th. Well, my four-year-old son was playing it and happened to leave it outside for an entire week. And it went through two rainstorms, 90 degree plus heat, and it was ruined. It still kind of comes on, but getting nothing on the screen, and it's dead. So... I ended up ordering the Switch console, which I was lucky enough to get. Our friend Duke Togo told me to follow a guy. I think the name is Wario64 on yep. Twitter. And he retweets stuff that's on sale. And one day, he tweeted that Switches were popping up on Amazon five times. The first four times I tried, I couldn't get one. And then the fifth time that day I tried, I actually got one in my cart. So shout out to Wario64 what a great, great Twitter account. And uh, if you're a gamer, especially a modern gamer, you have to follow Wario64 because he tweets out some great deals. So speaking of the Switch Lite, I actually put my broken one up on eBay at some of our friends' suggestions. And I actually got back over half my money from the original cost that I could put toward the new Switch. So I got to tell you, man, it's crazy times right now selling on eBay. And Sean, you absolutely know this, but I think people are buying even these broken ones up to fix them because they're getting more for used ones than what you can get a new copy for because quantities are so limited right now. So people are able to pay more, which is good for me, but they're gouging and charging more too, which I guess is bad for the consumer. But, you know, when you've got something broken, you're going to take advantage of any opportunity you can. And then at a local game store, I picked up a Famicom Disk System game. It's called Namita no Sokoban Special. 
And if you've ever played the game Boxel on Game Boy, it is sort of a box moving game, but it has different types of elements in it as well, like different types of power ups, different types of obstacles that you have to avoid. And so it's a very interesting puzzle game on the Famicom Disk System. As you know, I'm really into puzzle games, so I was very happy to add this to my collection. My next two pickups I want to talk about, I got from some of my good friends, and both of them happen to be on this call right now. Sean, I made a deal with you. You had a loose copy, and I usually don't deal in loose copies, but it was such a great deal for Albert Odyssey on the Sega Saturn. I watched some playthrough videos and just completely enamored with this RPG. When you offered me a great price on it, which I think is probably going for about double that right now, you know, it's kind of like, uh, I don't want to spend that money, but I couldn't pass it up. So a great deal, and uh, I really appreciate that. Well, I'm glad you finally got it. That was one of the mishaps I was talking about earlier. If I could talk about it for a second. Sure. When you're selling volumes on eBay, you're going to run into some bullshit. And this was one of the times I ran into bullshit. I sent out that day five things in first class mail. And shame on me for shipping you a high value item in first class mail. I shouldn't have done that in the first place. But the five things I put in the mail that day didn't get scanned for over a week. And I talked to the guy who picks up the bulk mail at work and he said, oh man, they're so far behind. Like, he's like, don't worry about it. They'll eventually get to it. And I'm like, damn, dude, like <laughs> these people are going to give me bad feedback and my friend Rich is going to be really upset. <laughs> but yeah, this is uh, the kind of things you got to deal with. But I'm glad you finally got it. And to whatever extent I can make deals and get good stuff into your hands at a discount is pretty much the only way I can think of to repay you for all the work you do on this show. And I don't want to make turn this into a, an award ceremony or a toast or anything, but... No, you can lick my ass if you want well, to. Well, so. to... <laughs> oh. <laughs> to the listeners who don't already know, Rich does all the editing on the show. He's just really good at it, and I don't have the time or inclination to do it. And so all of the work that goes into making the show happen, Rich does pretty much 100% of it. So, yeah, that's short of just like sending you a paycheck. I feel <laughs> like giving you really good prices on some shit that I'm trying to get rid of anyway is a good way to hopefully repay you just a little bit. I appreciate it, man. I really do. And, uh, yeah, it's a labor of love for me. I, I love doing it. It does take up a lot of time, and sometimes it drives me crazy, and, I, you know, I'll put it off to the last minute, and sometimes it even makes me have to rush to finish some of our games like I did our game of the month this month, but it's worth it. I enjoy it, and I'm a bit of a control freak anyway, so... As much work as I put into it, when I finish an episode, there is such a wonderful feeling of joy in having it done, and I take a lot of pride in it, so I appreciate that. Thank you very much. And then my final pickup is from our good buddy Adam, who's on the call. I didn't mention it last month. I had it before the other call, but I knew Adam was going to be on the show, so I wanted to thank him personally. But on Adam's vacation... He actually mentioned going to a game store and picking some stuff up, and a lot of times on our Slack chat, we will send each other pictures of things that are in the retro game stores and just be like, hey, does anybody need anything? I'll buy it, and then you can pay me back later. It's just the type of community we have and the trust that we all have in each other, which is wonderful. But Adam took a picture of some video game soundtracks, and I sort of looked in the background 
and I saw a copy of Conker's Bad Fur Day. If you recall from the show that we did for Conker's, I really, really loved the soundtrack, that kind of ragtime jazz. I thought it was one of the best parts of the game, even though I ended up really enjoying the game in its entirety. But I saw the soundtrack, and I was like, Adam, I think I'd really like to have that Conker's. I missed out on that. I looked it up on eBay while Adam was in the store, and after I had already told him to pick it up for me, and that damn thing was going for like 150 bucks, man, on eBay. And so I was like, Adam, Adam, please, please get it. (laughs) So (laughs) I think it was 40 bucks, Adam, is what I ended up paying for it, which is basically retail price for it. And I am so happy to have that in my collection. And uh, Adam, thank you so much for doing that, man. Very, very appreciative. So the funny thing is, is that when I was in that store, my cell phone coverage was so garbage that I'm like trying to walk to the front of the store, see if anybody's replying back with anything. And then when you're like, oh, yeah, give me the Conquer one. I walk back over to the vinyl. I'm flipping through. I'm like, I don't see this anywhere. I don't know what you're talking about because I was looking for like N64 style Conquer, like the cover of the game. And then my son was looking there, too. And he's like, what are you looking for? And I told him, he goes... Is it this one? He pulled it out. I was like, and it was that super cartoony one. I was like, that is awesome. Uh, but yeah, I was, I was happy to pick that up and help out. Cause, you know, kind of like Sean's doing now, I had a, a pretty good size sell off, you know, several years ago. And, and so I completely get that feeling of trying to get rid of some stuff. And so now I'm still collecting and finding some things myself, but a lot of the fun of it is seeing what else you can help pick up for your buddies and, and then just hook them up that way too. So, uh, yeah, I was happy to do it. Yeah, I completely agree, and that's one of the best things about our community at RF Generation. Everyone is just so generous and willing to help each other out, and uh, I don't think I've ever been a part of a community that was like that to the extent it is there, and that's why I'm still a member and have been a member all these years, and you know now joining you and uh, Duke, uh, one of the directors, and it's just uh, a labor of love, you know? Let my emptiness 
All right, so let's get into what we've been playing. Adam, what you been playing? I've been playing a lot of Animal Crossing. <laughs> it is nice. so, I mean, it's it's nice to just like fire it up. You can go around, find your fossils and do a couple things around the island. You know, check out the store, things like that. And it's just a nice little chill, relaxed way to just kind of do some stuff on a game, but not have to be super involved and take a huge time sink. You can just play for five or ten minutes and do some cleaning up on your island or do some rearranging of furniture or your house or all that kind of stuff. I've been a fan of the Animal Crossing series since the GameCube one came out here, and the new one is just incredible. There's so much just cool furniture that you can get for it. If you're not a fan of the series, it can sound just completely boring, but you can get like pinball machines and arcade cabinets for your house, and you can get like a 50-inch wall-mounted TV, and there's just a bunch of like modern additions to uh, not only the, the items you can get in the house and everything, but you can now do crafting, which it seems like a lot of stuff is doing crafting anymore, but it's just a basic way to help get new tools and new furniture and things like that, too. Um, I'm trying to get back to beating some of my Switch games because I'm desperately, painfully out of space on my SD card. And so I'm trying to beat some of my digital games so I can just archive them and clear up some space. So I've been working through Bayonetta, which is... So good. It's a yes. lot of fun. I really didn't know kind of what to expect with it, but coming back to it after a long pause in between took some getting used to the controls again, but it's a lot of fun. I can't wait to finish it up and then be able to move on to the second one. Be sure to listen to our episode, too, after you finish it. Oh, yeah. I'd mentioned in the Slack where I was listening to some, some older episodes that I had missed out on, and I stopped the Hellblade episode because I wanted to play it so badly that... I didn't want to hear anything about it. That was actually one of my pickups. I didn't mention it because I was felt like it, my list was getting a little bit too long, but that's going to be a definite play pretty soon. I also have been playing a little, I would consider it an indie game called Elliot Quest. I think it was out on Steam first, but it also made it Switch. I'm sure that like a lot of Switch owners that tend to buy some digital games at least, it's been on sale for like a buck, but it's a um, side-scrolling platformer action kind of game where you have these four bosses you're trying to beat and basically save the little island that you're on. And um, a lot of exploration replayability by going through with your new abilities and finding new sections of these caves and areas that you weren't able to get through before. Pretty fun little game. It's not terribly long, but it, it was also, you know, not super expensive either. So it was worth the money I paid into it. And then uh, also recently, this is for Bill, I played through the intro mission of Destiny 2, but I was playing it via the uh, Microsoft xCloud beta. Which, if people aren't aware, it's, it was basically a streaming directly from Microsoft. They have the game streaming where you can stream from your console to your phone, but this is streaming from Microsoft servers to your phone, and you just use a, like a Bluetooth controller. And I've used it a few different times, but I tried it out, you know, Destiny 2, which is obviously a multiplayer game, and um, really didn't hit any kind of lag, and it was, you know, pretty good game. Um, I don't know how much time I'll necessarily put into it, but the game was pretty good, and it was an interesting way of getting through and playing it. Cool, man. You know, my uh, son has been bugging me about possibly getting Animal Crossing. It's not really a series that I've ever played, but I think it might be something that he would really dig and get into. The Switch version, they just actually released a couple of updates for the summer that allow you to do some more kind of exploration. You're essentially on an island, and you can do fishing and catch bugs and all that kind of stuff. But with the recent update, you can now dive into the ocean. There's new creatures you can catch, but you can just swim around on the island. And then now they've added in where you can do fireworks displays. 
And using the built-in customization tools, you can design your own patterns for shirts and decals and stuff to put on the ground and stuff. But using those same tools, you could design fireworks that can go off in the air, too. Nice. I'm not nearly creative enough to make any of this kind of stuff, but there's a lot of people that have made like uh, different like album covers that were obviously real albums, but then they've put them into that uh, Animal Crossing editor to be able to hang those albums up on your walls and stuff like that. There's so much just possibilities of, of being able to do all that kind of stuff. It's a blast. Cool, man. All right, Sean, what games are you playing? Well, once again, it's not a whole ton. I'm still kind of trying to work on just being able to have like basic concentration and, and like mental retention. It's It's gotten really bad. I've gone down so many different like crazy rabbit holes that I don't even want to get into that my brain is so scrambled sometimes with, with everything that's going on. But um, nothing bad and I don't drink or do drugs, so don't. Don't worry about me. It's not like a depression thing. It's just a lack of clarity. You know, it took me like three weeks to read like a 250-page book, and I'm just like, man, I can't do anything mentally. It's so weird. And that kind of extends to playing video games, which is a real drag. But I did pick back up Xenoblade Chronicles, which I've talked about many times, and I won't get into it in depth, but that game, as I've said before, is kind of like comfort food for me. And uh, I've been playing it for over a year. I still haven't beat it, but uh, my game that I'm working on on the 3DS, I'm about 75% through the story. So I figured if any game could kind of help me regain a little bit of focus, it might be that one. And sure enough, it's kind of bringing me back to, you know, reality a little bit, as ironic as that sounds. Uh, but yeah, still plugging away at that. I played more of that Lara Croft than The Guardian of Light with my wife. It's a really great game. I figured out how to play multiplayer. It turns out it's right in the main menu that you can do. <laughs> you do just set it up for co-op. And uh, we played the first two levels together. It just had a lot of moments of like solving a puzzle and just being like, yeah, we did it. And Rich, you know me. Our listeners know. I've said it a million times environmental puzzles are the bane of my existence i hate them i'm not i'm never good at them but there's something about playing them co-op and putting our heads together you know me and my wife and just getting into a puzzle and being you know oh do the jumpy thing real quick oh i gotta get up there oh it's that lever over there you see it and like we have a projector so i'm sticking my finger in the air to like kind of point on the screen with the shadow and it's just like so awesome and uh if I do say so, my wife has gotten better at playing. The controls are a little bit complicated for someone like her who doesn't have a ton of experience, but she's gotten so much better at it that just playing it with her has been really smooth. We did run into this kind of mishap with our save files, though, where one weekend we were playing and our internet was out. So I can't explain what happened. And we're playing this on the Xbox 360. And some of our listeners can appreciate this. Some of our more old school minded people will appreciate turning on a Super Nintendo and having two controllers plugged in and you're ready to go, two-player, right? Whereas in an Xbox 360, you have to be online and you have to have player one signed into a profile and you have to have player two signed into a separate profile and each one has to choose a storage device and all this other stuff before you can even start the game. And somehow we screwed up and couldn't load our save files, so we had to start the game over again which was kind of annoying, but that's why we're not further along in it. But 
I really like the game and so does my wife. So we're going to continue playing it. But I say all that to say that when we discovered that we couldn't continue our game of Lara Croft and we'd have to start over again, I got really bent out of shape and didn't want to start the game over right then and there. So we started playing a different game called Juju, which is a game that was offered with Games with Gold, I think last month. I actually don't know off the top of my head if it's an Xbox One game or an Xbox 360 game. It must be a 360 game because I'm playing it on the 360. Yes, that's it. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So Juju is a two-dimensional platformer. It's kind of a Super Mario Brothers ripoff. It's cute animals. It's very colorful. There's a mechanic in it. It's like a dancing mechanic. So you hold the Y button in certain scenarios to unlock things. And there's these collectibles to get. The thing about it, it's very cute and it's a very easy game, but it's very fun. And unlike a lot of 2D platformers that can sometimes be, you know, a total cluster to play multiplayer simultaneous, this game actually has really good flow to it with the two characters on the screen at once. And again, just playing it cooperatively, so to speak, with my wife, it's like, Okay, get ready. One, two, three, jump. Jump to the next one. Okay, go, 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 go. And you're jumping up these huge towers with the platforms collapsing. And when we get to the top, we're like, yeah, like, it's funny. I often talk about, like, I don't play games to achieve things. I don't think getting better at games is something that I want to do in my life. I don't care about it. I'd rather be a faster runner or be able to lift heavier weights or do other things better in my life. I'm not like a get good at video games type of person. But that completely flips on its head when I'm playing something with my wife because the sense of achievement when she and I can get something together, like some kind of platforming challenge or some kind of puzzle challenge, it's just totally different than when I do it myself. I just love it. It's really cool. And I don't know what she's on right now that she's into gaming all of a sudden, but we've been playing a lot together and that's kind of where my head is at as far as gaming. Very cool, man. Sean with the self-directing pull there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is the Tomb Raider game a turn-based or is it like a real-time game? So it's a real-time action platformer puzzler in the style of like a Diablo game, like a top-down okay. isometric, whatever you want to call it. And there is combat. You know, you're running around, dodge rolling, and shooting and doing all kinds of that kind of fun stuff. And then there's also switch puzzles and block moving puzzles. And you have certain abilities like the one character has a helmet that Lara Croft can jump on and then it allows her to do higher jumps and stuff. So you have to use it at key moments. And like I said, it can be a real brain twister, but putting your heads together with somebody else makes it really rewarding to like finally solve those puzzles together. I was just wondering, because there's a mobile game called Lara Croft Go. Oh, yeah, yeah. Have you played that one? I've actually talked in the past about uh, Hitman Go, which I played a lot of, but I hate gated progression systems, so I (laughs) gave up on the game. But I haven't played Lara Croft Go yet. Is it good? There's a lot more like environmental puzzles and like climbing and, and things like that. I mean, the gameplay is similar to Hitman, but it's obviously the different type of environments. And, you know, I think she's doing more than just sneaking around to kill dudes, so... Nice. I'm pretty sure, or at least when I got it, it was way cheap. I would imagine if you watched it, it would probably go on sale for pretty cheap, too. I actually, I have it on one of my hacked Vitas, so... Oh, nice. I can definitely check it out. 
that's a great segue, because speaking of mobile games, guess what? I'm still playing Battle Cats. <laughs> I thought you were going to say you got a hacked Vita, Rich. <laughs> nah. nah. Yeah, man, uh, this game has still got its hooks into me and still playing it. I won't belabor talking about this game anymore. If you haven't checked it out, check it out. I think it's fun. It's cute. Love the art style. Love the gameplay because I like tower defense games. So, yeah. <laughs> In another game I've been playing, my son and daughter are always watching YouTube. I mean, they are so into watching videos, and my son watches a lot of playthrough videos. And one of the games that he was watching was Monopoly. And I thought, hey, it would be kind of cool, instead of playing the board game, which Monopoly's a long game, and it's rather dull. And I said, maybe I'll buy this game on PS4 and we can play it as a family. Well, I ordered the game off Amazon in the Hasbro Family Game Night Collection, which has a few other games. I believe Battleship, Risk, and I think Trivial Pursuit is also in that pack. And my oldest daughter and my middle son, we sat down and we started playing it. And, you know, we played it for 30 minutes. It was fun and having a good time with it. And then all of a sudden, it just became Monopoly. So we got kind of bored with it. <laughs> and uh, the good thing about it, though, is that you can actually save your games in the middle of a game. So we can actually go back to it later. And my kids have been asking me, hey, let's go back and finish our game of Monopoly. So, you know, that is one good aspect of the game. It is neat that when you build houses and hotels, you can see them going up and going to jail. Police sirens are going off. And you can actually set different house rules to the games as well. So I remember growing up, we used to always put any type of fees that we had to pay through chance or community chest or, you know, luxury tax or any of those fees. We'd always put them in the middle. And if you landed on free parking, you got that money. Well, you can actually set up your game to do that if you want to. So it is a bit customizable and, you know, it's a neat game. If you like Monopoly, it might be worth your time in checking out especially if you can do couch co-op. I actually started playing Elite Beat Agents, which is one of our games for next month. And I'm not going to talk about it much because we'll be talking about it on the show. But man, I am really bad at <laughs> So I'm hoping to make it through this game, but uh, we'll see. I even have it set to easy right now, and I am having some difficulty. But yeah, it's a neat little game, and uh, I'm enjoying it so far. And that's it. Nice. I noticed that we kind of glossed over the news section and Adam had something he wanted to talk about. So you want to... Oh, shit, man. I didn't even <laughs> see it. I'm sorry. No, it's all good. Let's just hit on it real quick because um, I think this is something that I kind of need explained to me because I saw some YouTube coverage of it, but I don't know exactly what it is, where it came from, and what are the implications of it. So Adam, take it away for our news topic. One of the big things that's been happening kind of over the last few weeks is there's been a story that's kind of been dubbed the Nintendo Giga Leak, and it's basically uh, somebody had hacked into some Nintendo servers and has been downloading and then releasing a ton of like source code for games, NES games, Super Nintendo. They have like the official Nintendo ROM files for like the entire NES set. There's been a lot of stuff recently with N64 stuff being leaked including some like unused texture files. They have one of the things I thought was one of the coolest ones was they found the 
uncompressed original audio for like Star Fox 64. And so somebody has taken all those clips. It's like a 30 minute YouTube video, but it's the entirety of all the voice acting from Star Fox 64 uncompressed. It sounds so good. Um, oh, wow. There's been a lot of like Pokemon game source code. There was one recently where they found some like employee emails, an office plan designed for one of the offices. It's just a huge batch of information that should never have been out. I believe that the person releasing this stuff has been found and has been arrested for it. But they also had similar kind of thing with Microsoft. The same person had gotten into Microsoft as well several years ago. And then when he got out, he basically immediately got back on and did Nintendo stuff. So if anybody wants to take a look, yeah, there's, there's people that have been finding all kinds of information and either generating the stuff from it. Like they found a Luigi character model for Mario 64, which people were freaking out like, oh, he's supposed to be in the game. Well, no, it's probably really early on and you know, just creating character models in case something would ever come from it. But yeah, there was just all kinds of just information, unreleased code, just early beta stuff. They're saying that the total size is potentially over two and a half terabytes of data, which is wow. just huge, um, but it's still coming out. So interesting stuff, but there's plenty of people who have already been working with the code and seeing what's in there based on all this information that nobody was ever supposed to see. Has anything come out as far as like the games that were included? One of the things I remember seeing was like some unused sprites from some Mario games that looked really cool and interesting. And are you sure they were sprites? Yes, this time <laughs> I'm sure they were sprites. <laughs> and I'm wondering, like, are there any um, games or prototype games that have been leaked that are out there and playable? Because I'm always into that kind of stuff. So um, some of the things that people have been doing have been either just modifying the game ROM that's already out there, like the standard game ROM, and modifying to add those graphics back in. There's a really interesting one of, uh, like an early development one of Yoshi in Mario World. But people have been creating new ROM images of, of some of this stuff, so you can try it out. For example, one that I actually tried out was a uh, Super Mario Kart. Uh, they had a different title screen music. As far as I could tell, that was the only real change that they made to it, but it was a way to restore that music into the game so you could actually hear what it was going to sound like. That's so cool. Yeah, I love that kind of stuff. And I'm going to have to dig a little deeper into that and try to get my hands on some of that stuff. I just do love that stuff, like prototype ROMs and hacked ROMs and even just throwing some weird sprite or some weird snippet of music back into a game for a hacked ROM. I just, I love that kind of stuff. So that's really cool. And I appreciate you suggesting the topic and then coming on and explaining it.
right. So as we mentioned, our game of the month was Earthbound. And as usual, we'll kick off the main topic of discussion with our question of the month. Rich, you came up with this one, and it's a fun one. Do you believe extraterrestrial life exists? And if they ever interact with Earth, will they be benevolent or malevolent? And of course, Rich, you took it upon yourself to explain to our <laughs> Twitter followers that benevolent means good and malevolent means evil. So uh, thanks for your help there. <laughs> oh, yeah. You're welcome. <laughs> so the first response came from Steven Eider, and he said, where do you think smartphones came from? <laughs> Next, we have Buried on Mars, and he said, yes, I saw one on TV, and it depends on if you like cats. And we got a animated gif of ALF here. <laughs> now, I got to say, ALF is one of those things that I remember it from my childhood, but haven't seen it in any way, shape, or form besides like some internet pictures since I was a young child. And I wonder what it would be like to actually watch an episode of that show. It holds up, man. It holds up. Yeah. Yeah. I enjoy it more now than I did then because now I understand a lot more of the inside jokes, the more adult humor to the show. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Uh, So, yeah, I think it I think it really holds up. And it's one of the shows that uh, my kids actually like watching as well. Yeah. I introduced them to it a few years back. Isn't that the best going back to rewatch something from when you were a kid and catching all the stuff that you had no idea about? I do that with music a lot too, you know. Oh, yeah. I just remember singing songs in the car and I'm like, "Wow, I was saying these lyrics out loud in front of my parents and they didn't say a thing." <laughs> <laughs> nice. So, next we have Corey Robertson. He says, "I do believe in extraterrestrial life, although I do not feel as if they will interact with Earth in our lifetime. When they do interact, I feel as if they will be benevolent." Collector cast, our good friend Duke Togo, says, The odds tell me they do, but the odds also tell me they won't ever get here. I'd like to think they'd be more the Superman type of alien, benevolent. And our last one comes from our friend Dave Smith, who says, Aliens exist. I feel like we disappoint slash bore them. Fair enough. Uh, (laughs) So (laughs) that's where we're at with the questions. Again, follow me at RFG Playcast to get the question of the month every month. You don't have to be playing the game or anything. Just tweet your answers as a response to that tweet, and we'll read them on the show as long as they're appropriate. So, And maybe even if they're not appropriate. Uh, yeah, when I say appropriate, <laughs> you know, within the bounds of polite discussion is all I'm trying to say. Absolutely. <laughs> I'll give my answer on this because it's so similar to Duke Togo's answer. My answer is basically falls around the Fermi paradox, which the concept is that our universe is so vast and there are billions of stars that are just like our sun and potentially billions of planets that are just like planet Earth. And in all likelihood, there's life out there. The problem is that the spaces between us are so vast that the technology to travel at faster than the speed of light or whatever it would take to reach those vast expanses are beyond at least our understanding of physics and what can be achieved in that sense. I think having said all that, with all the possibilities that are out there, 
there would probably be malevolent and benevolent life forms out there. And what we conceive of as good or evil could just be like something in the animal kingdom, right? Like we don't ascribe moral judgment to like a lion eating a gazelle. So if aliens came and slaughtered us, but they didn't have the concepts of morality that we have, it might be something different than good and evil. (laughs) This is something I kind of think about a lot like not a ton i'm not like obsessed with it but i actually just recently read a book called the aliens are coming and i forget the the author's name i apologize but i didn't love the book as a whole because i felt like it was one of those books that would have been better as a much shorter book or maybe even an essay or the guy just really stretched out some of the chapters and it's like all right get on with it But it was about this. It was about our search for extraterrestrial life throughout history and what we're doing currently and explaining the Fermi paradox and all the possibilities that are out there. So hard to recommend the book because of the way it was written, but the concepts in it were really cool. But yeah, this is something that interests me a lot, but I agree that it's not likely that we'll see it in our lifetime so you tell that to captain kirk yeah (laughs) (laughs) so that's my long-winded answer adam what about yourself i think it's almost arrogant to think that we're the only one in the entire vastness of space that could possibly have any sort of life on this planet as opposed to anywhere else as for if they ever showed up here would they be benevolent and i think that they might start benevolent and I think that we may have good intentions to start until one of them crashes in the desert and they get welcome to Earth right in the face. <laughs> and then, you know, it's going to go down. But yeah, I'm into that, too. If that happens, <laughs> if we can all <laughs> it would unite the world, <laughs> you know, <laughs> somebody's got to find Randy Quaid, though. Oh, I think he's living up there with Crab Master. Right? <laughs> Boy. Rich, what about you? Extraterrestrial life? Absolutely. I, I agree with you guys that the universe is just too vast for there not to be some other sort of living organism and inhabitable planets out there. My guess is they would be benevolent unless their home planet is in danger of being uninhabitable. And so I think that if it was forced upon them to find a habitable planet and we happen to be the only one in the vicinity that they could habitate, I think that it would probably be malevolent in that regard. Or if one of our leaders decides to piss them off, which I think there's enough leaders around the world that would probably end up pissing them off. So yeah, that's my stance on it. There's one I can think of that's really not a fan of aliens. You can leave that in. I don't care. I don't care whatever you want to do. (laughs) Oh, man. All right. Well, as I said, our game of the month is Earthbound. It's Adam's favorite game. He's our Earthbound expert. So I'll just go through the participants, and then we're going to kind of put Adam in the captain's chair for this one. Participants were me, Rich, Adam, Disposed Hero, Easy Racer, Engineer Mike, Normatron, Dougley007, Red McKnight, and Duke Togo. 
And now I'm just going to come right out and say this at the top of the discussion. Unfortunately, I did not finish the game. I tried hard and, you know, no excuses. I should have started the game earlier than I did. And then there were a lot of nights where I just got discouraged playing it. I was playing it on the Wii U and sometimes I didn't realize the tablet was running out of battery. So I would start playing it and the warning light would go on like five minutes into playing it. It's like, you know, this session is not happening and stop playing for the night and plug in the tablet. I, <laughs> Adam, I vented my frustrations to you. There were a couple of nights where I would literally play for like an hour and a half and make zero progress in the game. And we'll talk about this when we get into some of the gameplay loops that you can unfortunately get into with some of the enemies. But long story short, I didn't finish the game. It sucks. I'm upset. And uh, I wish I had. Sometimes I don't finish a game for a playthrough and I don't care. But this one, I really wanted to. But Adam, you're here as the expert in the game. Rich, I know you did finish the game. I'm not worried about being spoiled, even though I do intend to potentially continue playing the game and and hope to roll the credits myself but as a host (laughs) i kind of failed on this one guys and uh i apologize for that no and no apologies necessary as someone who was on the same slack chat the three of us had i will have to say that sean really put forth a great effort in this because he would go back and forth with Adam when he was having issues and things like that. And, you know, I have to commend you, even though you didn't finish, man, you didn't just give up on it. You really put forth a good effort. If we don't finish a game every month, I mean, that's just going to happen on a lot of games. I didn't finish Darksiders and, you know, you did, but, uh, you know, still played enough of the game to have a good idea of what it was about. So I commend you. I don't want our listeners to think that you didn't put forth a great effort because I know you did. And I think you're selling yourself a little short on that. Cool. Fair enough. And I appreciate the kind words there. I'll be honest with you. There have been games where I've been in that situation where it's just like, all right, I get the gist of this. Like the game Bully comes to mind. When we played that game, it was just like, all right, I get it. I don't need to finish this. Not that I phoned in the the work on the show or anything, This is a totally different case because I was playing my heart out, but I think it's just a matter of running out of time. So that's where I'm at, and I hope I can contribute enough to the conversation. But again, we got Adam here. He's the man for this game, (laughs) and I'm going to kick it over to him to start the discussion about the development of the game. I did want to chime in too. I do. I mean, I could see some frustration coming through on the Slack chat, but you did stick with it. And there were some tough spots early on, which, you know, we'll kind of get to and everything, but you definitely stuck through some of the tougher areas of the game. I may have possibly undersold the need to grind, you know, early on, it's probably helpful, but there's uh, some stuff we'll talk about, you know, later on that kind of explained kind of why I had mentioned that. But anyway, to start the, uh, Stats about the game. This was developed by Ape Inc., who had developed a handful of like board games and some Picross games, but they were only like Japan releases. And also, you know, obviously Mother One and Two in Japan. But they dissolved in '95 and became Creatures Inc., who has done a lot with uh, some of the Pokemon games, especially they did Pokemon Sword and Shield most recently. This game was also developed by HAL and published by Nintendo. It was released in August of '94 in Japan and June of '95 in North America. Uh, it spent five years in development. Basically, once the first Mother game was released in Japan, this game was in development for five years after that. The lead programmer was Satoru Iwata on the game, and the game was really in almost a development hell 
until Iwata got on board and he helped to basically write the ship and got, you know, was able to help finish the game in really a short period of time. Music was done by Keiichi Suzuki, who's done music for the Mother series and Smash Brothers, and then also Hip Tanaka, who people probably know best from Kid Icarus and Metroid on the NES. This was written and directed by Shigesato Itoi. And when I say written, he literally wrote every line of dialogue in the entire game, uh, in the Japanese version. He didn't know how to type, so he dictated it to somebody who then typed out the entire script. And he would go through and, and basically talk through lines and rewrite stuff and everything. But it was all dictated to somebody to write the entire script. He didn't have people helping him out or anything. He wrote all of the dialogue uh, and all the actions and story for the entire game. That's cool. Yeah, I heard about that. Nice. And uh, yeah, I think for our listeners who maybe aren't as familiar with the game, you mentioned Mother and Mother 2. Earthbound is basically Mother 2. It was released in Japan as Mother 2. And when they brought it over here to the U.S., it was released on the Super Nintendo as Earthbound. And from what I understand... The reason they did that is because, as far as naming goes, a title like Mother as an RPG didn't really stand out, so they wanted to change it to Earthbound. Plus, you know, they didn't want anyone thinking that it was a game based around Glenn Danzig. (laughs) (laughs) I've heard the story. I don't remember if this is exactly true, but the name Mother was also inspired by the, uh, the John Lennon song, which we'll get into the music references down the line, but that's just the first of many that, that will be brought up. And so, yeah, the, the first Mother game did not get released in the U.S. It was basically ready to be released. It was translated. It had everything ready to go. But it was going to be released very late in the U.S. NES life cycle to the point of it was going to be a super expensive cartridge because it had a very large ROM chip requirement, needed a battery, and then they were going to do similar to how they released Earthbound. They were going to release it with a basically a strategy guide on how to you know play through the game for the U.S. audience. But all that kind of fell through after the game was fully basically ready to go. The first game was eventually released on the uh, Wii U Virtual Console as Earthbound Beginnings. Yeah, and that's a good example of one, as I was talking about earlier with weird ROMs and prototypes that got dumped. This was actually, that completed English game was actually found and, and dumped like a, a, a while back. So... That's a, a cool example of one of those. And then to see it be released officially later on, almost as like a Star Fox 2 type of thing that we've mm-hmm. talked about in the past. You know, I think about this sometimes. People can bitch and complain about, oh, put this out, put this out. Where's this? Where's that? And it's like a lot of cool, weird stuff has come out, whether it's Nintendo or anybody else. You know, we've talked about Star Fox 2. Now we're talking about Mother earthbound origins or whatever they called it the original mother game it's just interesting to me that that was one of those things uh someone found a prototype rom and with the english translation intact and it ended up getting put on the internet a few years ago well and really for every star fox 2 and mother one earthbound which it was going to be called earthbound when it was released here and so they just moved that title to the mother 2 version for the snes but for every one of those type of games, Mother, Star Fox 2, I'm sure there's plenty of just crap you don't want to even look at that just right. is not even worth trying to hunt down or try out. And so you can't just say release everything because I'm sure there's a lot of just crap that was canceled for a reason. Yeah. 
Absolutely. Yeah, good counterpoint for sure. Yeah, and I guess um, we should also mention that this game was also released on the SNES Classic. I know our friend Addicted mentioned that on the last show, and I actually went and uh, verified that he is correct. It is on the SNES Classic. So for this game to actually make that console, because this game is sort of not a hidden gem, but it's, you know, a game when people talk about the SNES, this is one that always comes up, but it's not one of the more well-known games when the SNES was active. When it was released, it was an expensive game because it had the player's guide, it had the giant box and everything else, and then they're they're advertising for it. One of the most famous Nintendo Power ads was, you open it up and it's just a two-page ad and it said, this game stinks. Oh, well that that's a good selling point, but it has <laughs> it had the the little scratch and sniff card. You would smell it and it just had this horrible smell. And it's like, oh, I'm I wonder why nobody wanted to play this at the time. <laughs> I happened to see it. I rode my bike into town because we didn't live in town, so I rode my bike into town to the grocery store. Saw it there, and I you know rented it from the grocery store, brought it home. They let you take the guide and everything, and I was pretty hooked right off the bat when it first came out. You know, we didn't have the kind of, you know, obviously, connectivity, internet, all that kind of stuff that we do now. But I think that it was overlooked because of the price, and it was clearanced out and just kind of passed over at the time. But I would wonder if emulation played a big part in people being able to play it and not have to invest the money in it. And come to find out, it's really a pretty good RPG on the system that was, at the time, overlooked, but you know, quickly become a classic. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. And Adam, you just actually kind of naturally brought up something we usually talk about, which is our personal histories with a game. Rich, have you ever played this game before? I don't think we've discussed that. You know, my history with the game is I actually got it from a member of RF Generation. My label has a small tear in it, but I was able to get this game in trade for a total of about $50. And even at the time, the game was 125 150 bucks, which is sort of the price it had stayed at until COVID. Just a kind member on the site that was looking for some games that I had and actually offered me the deal for Earthbound. So um, that's how I got it. But I'd started playing the game actually about two years ago. I was just like, you know, I've heard so much about this game. I have to play it. And I made it maybe a third of the way through and um, just had some problems with a lot of the enemies and stuff and had other stuff going on like this podcast and, you know, other games that I had to play and uh, ended up just putting it down and not finishing it. But uh, yeah, I'm happy that uh, we're able to put it on the agenda for this month and I was able to finish it. Nice. And as for me, I've actually never played this game. It's always... I wouldn't say always, but since I've been in like the collecting scene, it's been on my radar. I'd never heard of it when I was uh, younger and playing the Super Nintendo. I got my copy of it in trade also. I used to work with this guy, Ryan, who was, I don't know, man, I wouldn't consider him a collector, but he really loved to like wheel and deal in high value video games. And I don't know something about making trades and buying and selling really expensive video games was something he was into. So I leveraged that into getting, (laughs) amongst other things, a really nice clean copy of Earthbound from him in trade. And uh, that's how I came across my copy, which 
I'll save it for my final thoughts, whether I think that copy is going to stay in my collection. But my point is, I don't have too much of a history with this game besides the hype around the physical Super Nintendo card. Adam, how many times would you say you've probably played through this game? Uh, There was a time when I was probably playing through it at least once a year. It's one of those things where it's a decent time sink if you're not rushing through it, but there's been a point of just not always having the time to to kind of sit through and do that. The Wii U helped out with that. I've also bought, I mean, I bought it on the 3DS and the Wii U, and I've got the SNS Classic, and I've got, you know, all these different ways to play the game. But yeah, there was a time when, you know, at least once a year I would make it through the game. I never owned it growing up. Like I said, I rented it from our grocery store video rental area and, you know, made it not too far through the game. Just on the first playthrough, I I was still somewhat new to RPGs at the time even, but I got my copy later. My brother-in-law was going through some stuff and he had a copy of it from when it had come out and he uh, actually gave me his copy with the guide. And so I don't have any money invested in it, but it's still got all the scratch and sniff cards and all that kind of stuff in it too. I'm just kind of on the hunt for a box now for mine. But yeah, I never had it at the time when it was out new. All right, Rich, you want to kick us off with the story in 60 seconds? I will. Story in 60 seconds. It's late at night, and you've woken from a deep slumber by the sound of a loud crash. After navigating through frantic townspeople and the watchful eye of the wanted police force, you discover the cause of this disturbance, a large meteorite. You soon discover the new presence of an evil alien force named Gygus, who has consumed the world in hatred and taken possession of animals, humans, and even previously inanimate objects to do his bidding. Before perishing, a small but powerful winged creature hands you an artifact known as the Soundstone, at which time you are instructed to collect melodies from eight hidden sanctuaries. With the power of the Soundstone and the help of three trusty friends as foretold by a prophecy, you must navigate the strange world of Eagle Land and beyond before your final confrontation with Gygus. The fate of the world is in your hands, but please, Take a break every once in a while. And for goodness sakes, call your mom every now and then, will ya? Nice. <laughs> that was I great. I like it. All right. Well, let's get into gameplay. As we've said, it is an RPG. And even though it is unique in the fact that it takes place in modern times, which is very unique amongst RPGs, especially back in the day on the Super Nintendo, we had some sci-fi stuff, but a lot of the stuff was medieval-ish fantasy type settings. But it is still a turn-based RPG with, for the most part, top-down presentation it's hard to explain. <laughs> You'd have to see it, but <laughs> it's uh, it's on an angle a little bit, camera angle-wise, but it's a walking around a map, going from town to town, fighting turn-based battles type of RPG. Yeah, what that's called is um, a 2D oblique projection, where everything's sort of on these right angles. It doesn't have that 3D depth to it. It's essentially 2D, and it's not like your typical like overhead or isometric type gameplay right yeah so even though it's a traditional rpg in gameplay from a certain aspect there are a lot of unique things in the gameplay of the game 
One of which is the way the HP works. And HP and PP, which is funny because if our listeners will remember back to our South Park episode, they made a joke about your mana or your magic points being called PP. And they're actually called that in this game. So if I had to guess, I would say South Park was definitely paying homage to Earthbound with that joke. But they're on like an odometer kind of thing. And one of the things you can take advantage of, which Adam explained to me in the Slack chat to help my characters to not die, is that if you act fast enough and end a battle, beat uh, the enemy or whatever, as your HP is rolling down, it'll stop if you win the battle. So that's a really unique gameplay mechanic that I don't think I've seen anywhere else. I'm sure it's out there, but... You would think that would be more like ripped off by other developers to use that, but it never really caught on as a thing, you know? And that's really tough to take advantage of early on in the game. Once you get higher levels and further into the game, it becomes really part of the strategy as you're fighting tougher and tougher enemies and everybody hits hard and there's some that uh, you're going to take some tough hits, but you can still either if you complete the battle or if you're able to use a healing item or or magic before their hp hits zero then you can still keep that character alive yeah and um, i think we also should mention as far as health concern you've got this characteristic that you can build up it's called guts and uh if your health goes all the way to zero you can still be left with one hp if your guts is high enough yeah there's um certain attacks where you'll take an attack that is Way more than what you have currently for HP, but it won't be what's called a mortal blow. If it's a mortal blow, then that will kill the character. If it's just a ton of HP, but it doesn't say it's a mortal blow, your character's guts may be high enough to leave you with one HP. You know, this is sort of what makes the game unique, is this health meter and how it rolls and how your heals or use of an item can keep your character from going all the way down to zero. Because I never had really a problem with my main character, but we should say you actually obtain three additional characters in this game. So with my other three characters, I had a lot of issues with them um, dying. But, you know, with my main character, I didn't take many heavy blows. And, uh, you know, I think it says a lot about the character classes and the way the uh, defense and the armor works for each of the different characters. But, yeah, with those big blows, I mean, like you said, later in the game, it just becomes a part of the game. You're going to take that damage that's going to put you way past zero. And so... It takes a little getting used to, but you have to learn how to navigate the menu very, very quickly. Yep. Speaking of that, we can roll into character abilities and character... I wouldn't call them classes, but I would say each character kind of fits the archetype of an RPG class. Where Ness is your main hero, he's your warrior tank type of person, Paula's your caster... Jeff is worthless and Pooh oh. I didn't get. So <laughs> you have not gotten far enough, my friend. Yeah, no, I know. I know. I'm no. just I'm talking smack because this, where I was in the game was I had kind of just recruited Jeff and probably don't know how to use him properly. So actually, please illuminate me and and the listeners what the characters do in combat. Ness, you got pretty much right. He's a basic warrior. He's a tank. He has the most HP in the game. He can do offensive, but also healing and shield kind of assist spells as well. 
Paul is definitely the magic user. And once she gets into some of the higher levels, she's going to get some really powerful magic that can really just put a hurt on some of the tougher enemies. Jeff has no magic ability at all. He's nerdy. He's got glasses and all that kind of stuff. You can find throughout the game different items that are broken. And one of the stats is the uh, IQ. And Jeff's is always at the top. Sort of a, a side function to that uh, particular attribute is he can repair broken objects, which can either give him an item that's a one-use or multi-use, but also it can give him new weapons for the area. And um, basic bash kind of attacks are fine, but once you get later in the game, he can find and buy things like bombs and bottle rockets and things like that. That's where he is best. You get these big bottle rockets and multi-bottle rockets that just deal hundreds of HP of damage. That is definitely where he's best. You know, in my playthrough, I didn't really use a lot of those, but that's certainly where he is best is to use those kind of items in battle. And then the last character you get is Pooh, and he's more of a... He's almost like a... Kind of a martial arts type character. There's usually a martial arts character class in some games. Yeah, and he's very unique in that most of the standard healing items in the game are things like hamburgers and pizzas and stuff. If you give one of those to Pooh, he will recover a extremely minor amount of HP. But if you buy some of the specialty food items when you visit the land that he's from, he will actually get huge HP and PP refills from those different items, which is another kind of a quirk to the game is all the food because you can buy hamburgers and stuff, but you can also buy condiments. Like you can buy a packet of ketchup and if you eat a burger and then it'll automatically put some ketchup on top of it and then you recover more HP. There's a lot of just kind of quirky things that you can do with that. But uh, Pooh's very unique in that he also can't use most of the armor and weapons. All of his equipment has to be found. He can still do a, a decent amount of damage with nothing equipped, but all of his stats, his attack and defense actually will drop if you equip a standard item onto Pooh. Like I said, a lot of his stuff is found, and we can kind of get into one of the, the most famous items in the game, you know, a bit later. But he's also a, a magic user, but he doesn't quite have the power that Paula does. I think he's more of a, very much a support character. He can cast magic, but he's got some of the strongest healing in the game. So that's where I tend to put his role is that he is very much a healer while Ness can heal if he needs to, but he should be tanking. He should be bashing and, and using some magic. Leave Pooh back to assist with healing more than uh, straight up attacking. Yeah, I would probably compare Pooh to more like a paladin type character, whereas he has a decent attack. It's not going to be as good as Ness's attack, but he also plays a healer as well, and he becomes actually your main healer toward the end of the game because Ness, you're going to need more of the, uh, the firepower and sometimes shielding as well. Nice. Well, we touched on the inventory and items, so let's dive a little bit more into that, and I'll kind of kick it off with a little bit of a gripe, and Adam, if you could explain this to me too, the inventory woes in this game. And I, I, when we talk yeah. about like ROM hacks and whatever, I was like, oh, I wish I was playing a game of this that was like hacked to have unlimited inventory. <laughs> But there's a whole system to it. Like the game accommodates you in certain ways. It just takes longer to organize your inventory. And this is one of the things that was kind of stifling me as I played the game was that there's uh, something called Escargo Express, which I believe in the context of the story, it's your 
sister's business that she runs where yeah, it's a place that she works okay so you can summon them to come and take items out of your inventory and and store them for you which is cute and fun and cool it's just um, but you gotta pay that delivery fee you do have to pay for it (laughs) it's the same throughout the whole game though it's great yeah it's like 18 bucks right yeah And, and they'll take up to three items every time yeah this was a very interesting aspect of the game and i think it's maybe one of the places it's weird because they program around it with things like Escargot Express, but it's still something that's like the game showing its age because you have such a limited inventory system. Am I on the right track here or am I just not seeing it the right way? I almost kind of feel like it's more of an artificial limitation that they just put in just to make it something else that you have to manage. But I also think they set the game in more of a modern time. It's a very more real world type of setting, at least to start. And I almost feel like by setting it up that way where you can carry a limited amount of things, it almost makes it more realistic because you can't just have 300 different types of potions ready to, to go. I got a backpack, I can fit this much stuff in it, and this is all I can carry. I completely understand the frustration, though, as far as being able to carry a certain amount of things. I'm certainly guilty of hoarding stuff and not using that properly when I was first playing it. Now that I've played through it a bit more and understood a little bit more about how it's played and how to get through some of those issues. Utilizing Escargo Express to do some of that extra inventory management really kind of opens things up as far as what you need versus what you just have. That's at least my take on on the inventory stuff. Yeah, and I think one of the challenges also, and this is one of the more common questions I was asking you and Rich as I was playing the game, is literally figuring out what's what. And what you need and what you don't need. Because there's so many key items and weird like red herring items. I was holding all these things that, I again, I didn't really understand how to use Jeff from when I first got him. And then understanding that all these broken things are things that he fixes and turns (laughs) into weapons. It's just interesting. I don't think I've ever played an RPG that had so much randomness to the items you get. And when I say randomness, I don't mean in the sense that the items you get are random. I just mean like what they're called and what they do so that when you open the inventory screen, you're looking at all this weird shit, like dented can of tuna and chewed up bubble gum. And it's like, what is this, all this stuff? And what am I supposed to do with it? You know what I mean? There's a lot of just like weird, almost side quest type of stuff that you can do that will get you some just really bizarre items as well. There's a guy that, uh, has a sign in the desert that says, if you find my contact lens and bring it to me, there's a reward for you, basically. But it's a little shining spot in the desert that you have to find. And meanwhile, you're in the heat. You are getting heat stroke. You have to then heal that or use a wet towel to to remove that. There's just so much just stuff that you can do that if you're not actively just kind of searching throughout the game, you're going to miss a lot of stuff. It's a game that can be played quickly, but if you take the time to go through it and explore and just talk to people, you're going to find a lot of really funny things as well. Rich, what about you? Did you have any troubles with the inventory, either figuring out what to do with all the items or having storage space for all of them and knowing which ones to send with the escargo or anything like that? Yeah, I mean, I definitely had some issues with storage space. And you get these items that are very significant in the game and you don't want to just drop them. But the game is really good, even when you want to send stuff to Escargo Express, 
it'll tell you you can't send this because you may need it later on in the game. And so I think it does a good job of that. But, you know, I found that I didn't use S-Cargo Express to retrieve things. You know, it would just be a way of kind of cleaning out my inventory. And I was like, well, maybe I'll need this later. I'll just send it out. But um, like I said, it just became a way of me not just dropping items that I could drop or reselling items, but just to get them out of my inventory to create more space. So, yeah, I'm with you on the limitations of that. But, uh, yeah, one of the things I wanted to talk about, <laughs> you mentioned some of the weapons and stuff in the game. That There's a funny part that I came to. I actually beat one of the slimes or whatever it is, giant turd. I I, I don't know. <laughs> but uh, the one out in the swamp, and when you defeat him, he gives you the Casey bat. Yep. You know, I equipped it. I was like, oh, man, look at the amount of damage this thing does. This must be the best weapon in the game. And so I equip it, and I sail my other bat. <gasps> and I'm going around, and I'm swinging at things. And, of course, you know the myth of Casey at the bat. I mean, the big thing in that poem is that he strikes out. So you are constantly missing with this bat. You do hit every once in a while, but it really, really stinks. So I had to end up time traveling back to one of the desert lands and uh, actually purchase another bat because I was missing so much. That's one of the funny things that it does. It raises your attacks so much. Another thing you can check is when you select an item, there's a little help button and it will give you a description of the item and what it does. And I'm pretty sure the Casey bat kind of alludes to the fact that you you'll hit hard, but you're going to miss a lot, too. And some of the other items in the game, like the yo-yo and the slingshot, those um, have a higher chance of missing, too, as well. And those are deceptively kind of because when you're buying weapons, it's basically um, when you're in the item shop. It will darken the character status box at the bottom of the screen if they can't use it. It will leave it as the colors that you chose if it's not as good. But it'll start flashing that box if it has a higher attack or defense, It depending on if it's a, a weapon or a, just a piece of armor. And those yo-yos and slingshots will tell you that they are a higher attack. And they technically are, but they are not that character's primary weapon and you will miss a lot. Yeah, they're just not as effective as sticking with the style of weapons that the character is meant to have. You had to die Don't ever 
Let's talk about the economy of this game because it's another one of the things that is really, really unique about this game. I've never played a game like this before. I think there are some things that are similar, but I really can't think of a game where you have a bank account and you have cash that's on your person. There's probably variations of this. Don't Please, I don't need the corrections. Oh, this game does it. This game, does, I, I get it. But in this game, you have a bank account and you go to ATMs to withdraw cash, which you have on your person. You have to have it on you to buy items, and you lose half of it when you die. You can also use it to go to hospitals to cure death uh, if one of your party members gets KO'd. And you can use it to cure status ailments if they're persistent. Some status ailments end at the end of a battle, but some are persistent and you want to get rid of those. So this is very interesting to me. And, and also that it's in presumably U.S. dollars is also unique, too. It's not rupees. It's not. What's the one in Final Fantasy? Gil. Gil. Right. Bitcoin. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So it's not in rupees, it's not in gil, it's in U.S. dollars, which is also very unique. Uh, Shigesatsu Itoi based it as basically a almost a representation of the U.S. when he was building out the world. Obviously, it's a fictional land, but it was inspired by the U.S., which is also why the entirety of it's called Eagle Land. So I don't want to spend too much time on it, but what were some of you guys' strats? I'm especially interested in Adam's answer on this. Like, how much money do you oh, leave thanks. in the... <laughs> like how much money to leave in the bank and how much to have on you and i'll tell you my strategy so most of the atms are in the drug stores which is basically your shops of the game so i would look at what i needed pull the money out of the atm buy what i needed and then carry about 200 dollars at all times because if a party member died that's a hundred dollars to revive them give or take depending on what town you're in and then if there's a status ailment. But this leads to a gameplay style that makes me want to avoid character deaths and status ailments at all costs, <laughs> which, if you don't do that, leads to this kind of frustrating gameplay loop of, oh man, one of my character members died. You schlep all the way out of the dungeon, find a hospital. Oh wait, I don't have enough money to revive. Go to the drugstore, pull money out of the ATM, go back to the hospital, Revive the character, schlep back into the dungeon. I'm not going to lie, that was kind of getting on my nerves at points where I was just like, okay, no characters can die no matter what. So <laughs> I was kind of glad I was playing it on the Wii U because there's one save state on the Wii U for the virtual console games. So I got to admit, I was save scumming a little bit when, as I was going through a dungeon. If my HP and PP were high or maxed out, I would save. And then if I got messed up in a fight, I could just revert to that save. But as far as, you know, your everyday carry, Adam, as you're playing this game, what's your kind of strategy with the money? So I know that when I first started playing, I would have you know money in the ATM. I would pull all of that cash out and I would carry it all in my person and then I would die and I would lose half of it. And yeah. you learn later on as you play it more and more. You only lose half of it if it's on your person. 
If it is in the ATM, you don't lose half of it. So I will just play with a minimum amount of cash. I will take out either exactly what I need to buy something or I'll take out enough and just kind of leave it out. If it's like, you know, 100 bucks or 200 bucks or whatever it is. And just kind of letting it pile up in the ATM. And by the end of the game, you've got so much money, you can't carry it all on your person at once. That's kind of where my strategies evolve to. If you carry some for revival, but usually by that point, you're to a spot where there's something close by where you can take money out to either buy some more healing items or go revive or whatever. But usually, you know, when you get to that point, you're going to find an ATM nearby if you need to revive a character. So I I keep just the bare minimum on, on hand. Rich, what about you? Yeah, same strategy. Um, basically, just keeping a few hundred bucks on hand at a time, just in case I died, and leaving the majority of it in the ATM unless I needed to purchase things like new weapons. You know, when I would get to a new town, new armor, and things like that. Repurchase new weapons. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I do want to mention that with the enemies in the game, there are no random encounters. You do see the enemies on the screen. A lot of times they will chase you and you run into them. But also, they do not drop money. The way you accumulate money in this game is kind of nutty as well because you actually find a telephone and you can actually save your game by talking to your dad. But also in talking to him, if you've played through some of the game, every time you come back to him, he will put money in your bank account. So, Ness is clearly a trust fund kid. I mean, you can have like, <laughs> you can have like thousands upon thousands of dollars that your dad is just putting in your checking account. And so, from that perspective, it's kind of nuts and, you know, just a completely different style of play. Whereas with most RPGs, you take out monsters or other humanoids and you are gaining experience and cash. And so, this kind of flips the script on that and it's a very interesting take however if you're fighting angry dogs or slimes clearly they're not going to have money anyway so you know <laughs> kind of makes sense and that's almost referenced a little bit early on in the game after the meteor lands and you get pokey's brother and bring him back home the dad says that i'm not really happy with you guys living next door i loaned your dad a lot of money it may have been a hundred thousand dollars or more and so that's kind of alluded to early on too but also, you don't have to talk to him to get the money. It's already in the ATM. And so you can actually do some fights, go to the ATM, take out money if, you, if you're short on cash or whatever. And he'll just say, I've deposited this much money. But if you've already taken all that out, he'll say, you should currently have $0 in the bank. So you don't have to necessarily talk to him to get that money. It's already in there. He's just letting you know how much is in there currently. The other thing is, the only interaction that you have with your dad is on the phone. You do not see that character anywhere. And even in the in the credits roll, when it says dad, it's just a picture of a, a black telephone. Yeah. And um, that was sort of inspired by Shigesato Itoi's actual father, who was not really around a lot. And he just you know, knew him from talking on the phone. And that was sort of a, another kind of inspiration, I think, there, too. Oh, interesting. I was wondering about that, and I did want to mention that the dad was a faceless character. So, yeah, thanks for pointing that out. So let's talk about the photographer, because <laughs> I want to know where this leads to, if anything. So throughout the game, the game will kind of stop you in your tracks, and this photographer falls from the sky. <laughs> he tells you to pose for a picture. kind of twirls from the sky. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. <laughs> 
and uh, tells you to pose for a picture and say fuzzy pickles, which you do. And then there's a, a shutter animation on the screen. And then that's it. You go along your merry way. So having not finished the game, I want to know what is the purpose of this? Does this guy reward you for posing for all the pictures or what happens? I can only speak to this in the sense of what happens at the end of the game. I don't know if there are a certain number of photographs that you have to collect or if you receive any benefit from maybe collecting all the photographs from various places. But in the end, what it kind of turns into is it becomes a scrapbook to go along with the end credits. So you get all those pictures that were taken and you you and your mom are looking through your scrapbook at the end. And that's where all the photos come back into play. Now, Adam, you may know more secrets to the game, and you can maybe comment on if there's anything else. Um, you don't get anything for getting all of them. There's 32 different spots where you can get photographs in the game. But also, you'll see the photographs in the end credits. But they are not exactly the pictures that you took. It's just a right. stock image of those different locations. I think it's just another kind of a building thing throughout the game. You're getting these different locations, and you're getting the pictures and stuff taken, but then you kind of see how it all ties together once you get to the credits. But yeah, there's no bonus for getting all of them, and there's some that you can completely avoid. There's really only a handful that you have to get, because once it happens and it's part of the storyline, it will prompt a picture to be taken. So Rich, other than the photographer, what were some of the other notable NPCs you wanted to mention? Yeah, I mean, I feel like with every town, there is sort of two parts. One of those parts is finding the hidden sanctuary. And usually there's a boss battle that goes along with that. And then the other part is helping someone out in town that has a problem. So because of this, there's all these like really, really funny and great NPCs One of the most notable, and I can't think of the name, Adam's going to have to help me with this, the Blues Brothers ripoff band. The Runaway Five. And to me, they're sort of the most memorable, but there are several other really notable NPCs in the game. Runaway Five that has six members in the band. Right. (laughs) (laughs) You'll notice a lot of characters that are very much referential. There's the guy that quite clearly looks like Mr. T walking around. Um, Yeah. I think I think that uh, Everdred is kind of a, a funny character as well. He's not clearly on the up and up. Once you save Paula and come back, he's like, "Well, I've got this money. I can't keep it anymore, so you have it." Um, big wad of cash. Yeah, the wad of cash. Then <laughs> <laughs> I think one of the most well known would be the Mister Saturn folks. Yeah, they are um, extremely helpful people in general, as far as. They will heal any status element for free. They will revive your characters for free. And once you kind of get to that point, there's a lot of items that you can buy in that town that will assist you as you're going through later. The big one that I'd mentioned to Sean being the Horn of Life. There's an item called the Cup of Life Noodles, which is obviously a play on the Cup of Noodles, but that will revive your character full HP, full PP. But there's only a certain number of those in the entire game. You cannot buy that item. You can buy the Horn of Life, though, and that will revive them with a little bit of HP. I think uh, 25%. It's something that you can use to heal and revive when you're out battling. But, yeah, like I said, the Mr. Saturns are the most well-known. Yeah, most iconic for sure. I see them in a lot of references to the game. 
anybody doing artwork for Earthbound, they're going to use Mr. Saturn. And uh, like you said, it's a town you come back to and toward the end of the game that you end up stocking up on a lot of items and the Horn of Life. I remember going into that last part because there's a part of the game where you can't go back. And I remember like, okay, I'm going to buy all these Horns of Life and I'm going <laughs> to also create two save files because I knew I couldn't go back. <laughs> I could really see someone getting stuck at the end of that game had they not created that second save file. Because mm. when you die, if you've already used the items, even if you come back to a save point, you no longer have the items that you used. I want to throw something in just because I don't know where else to say it because you did talk about Saturn Town, which has these Mr. Saturns. I saw in a YouTube video that Etoy was inspired by the works of Kurt Vonnegut to create those because Kurt Vonnegut's novels, for the most part, are in a shared universe with a few characters who tend to pop up in a lot of his works like there's this curmudgeonly old sci-fi author named Kilgore Trout who is in a lot of Vonnegut novels, which I love that kind of stuff. It just makes it fun for fans. But there's an alien race. I think they're called the Pomphladorians in the Vonnegut novels. And uh, I saw that Etoy was inspired by the Pomphladorians to create the Mr. Saturns. So I thought that was really cool because I love Kurt Vonnegut and I enjoyed, you know, discovering that reference. Well, and sort of along those, those same lines, the Mr. Saturn, when they speak, the characters that are used look like handwritten instead of just being the stock font used throughout the game. In the Japanese version, the Mr. Saturn font is also different from the standard. But that font was actually inspired by Itoi's daughter's actual handwriting. She was really young at the time, and so they actually based that font on how she was writing and learning to write. That's cool. That is really cool. All right, well, that's not a bad segue into the graphics. We've touched on a lot of this stuff already here, so we don't have to spend too much time on graphics. I know we really want to get to sound and music, but... As far as the visual presentation of the game, as I noted before, the fact that the game takes place in present day, or at least modern times, let's say, sets it apart from other RPGs for the most part. It's very colorful, and going through each town and dungeon, yeah, there's some that are just like brown caves, but there's a lot of uniqueness to kind of everything as far as the environments and where you go. I like the character sprites. They're, <laughs> they're very unique, very expressive. Some of them look a little weird and kind of squished, but for the most part, there's a lot of character and just pizzazz to this whole game from a visual perspective. So yeah, I just want to open the discussion to a brief talk about the, the graphics in the game. I mean, if you want to talk about the environments, each area is very distinct. I mean, there's a few things that kind of have an overlap, but there's a lot of it where each area is very much different. Even the four initial towns have their own quirks to them. On it and Tucson are pretty similar. Tucson's a little bit bigger, but once you get into three, then the giant circus tent and Foresight is the big city and you know, kind of all the different places in between, there's a lot of variety that you run into, and each area has its own distinct feel that, you know, if you need to get something, is like, oh, that's here, you know, that's in this area, 
But then talking about another part of the graphics is the battle screen that you're looking at. You don't see your characters on screen. You just have, like we were saying, the, the status boxes at the bottom. But you'll see the enemy that you're fighting, which is a pretty large sprite. But then the background, it's a lot of just super trippy movement, <laughs> yeah. and there's a lot of colors. There's a great video by like Retro Mechanics Explained, I believe, and they did a great explanation about how they were able to make all those different effects happen during the different battle screens. And seeing a picture, a still image of it is one thing, but watching them in motion takes it from being a basic dragon warrior type of look to having just the extra effect and the extra graphical pizzazz. It's not a major thing, but it adds that extra to really kind of help the battle system not also just be a boring black screen. Yeah, and I'll say, especially in the final battle, um, man, they really did a job on that. Talk about something that's completely trippy. There was a lot of effort put into the background of that. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you guys. I love the backdrops in this game. The towns are bright, they're colorful. Like we talked about, it's that 2D presentation, that oblique projection, as I mentioned before. It's a really kind of neat art style that you really don't see in a lot of RPGs because you're typically looking at it from overhead perspective. Something like Dragon Warrior, your character sprite is as big as the town, you know? <laughs> and uh, I think they just did an excellent job with everything. I love the different lands. You know, you've got your jungles, you've got your deserts, and you've got your battles in the future. I just think they do a great job of creating these environments, and you just get a really nice feel for the time and place of the game. Let's tie the music into the discussion at this point. I mean, it's obvious. The music is really a standout thing in this game. And for what it's worth, I did sometimes play this game with the volume off because I was trying to do something else while I was playing it. However, I really like the music of this game. It's very um, ear-catching. As I said, I didn't finish the game, but I did watch the final boss battle, and I really like the way they do foreboding and like scariness and intimidation in the music. You can tell there's different battle themes, and I don't know if this is on purpose or if I'm even correct about this, but some of the enemies' music sounds scarier, and I'm not just talking about boss battles. 
Like Adam, I don't know, maybe you know more about this than I do. If enemies are a higher level than you, does it play different music or something? Or am I way off base on this? I think it changes the music a bit, but that's more of just a, a progression throughout the game. Oh, there's certain okay. music okay. that there's like, um, the title of the track is Battle Against a Weak Enemy. <laughs> that's just the title of the you know the track when you're looking through them. And so I think that there's a lot of that where it's more of just a progression as you're going through. But yeah, there's a lot of stuff that's like when you're fighting the hippies, how it plays the different kind of twangy music versus just a general like fighting the dogs and snakes and that kind of stuff too. Yeah. And so we should mention that there are a lot of uh, real world pieces of music that are used in this game. There's some... Beatles, there's the Star Spangled Banner, there's a whole <laughs> bunch of other orchestral pieces that are referenced in this game, and it even hindered some ports of the game from happening, right, Adam? That was sort of always the story. Um, I'm not sure how much of that's actually accurate or not. One of the early sort of mini-bosses that you fight is Frankie, and it's very clearly based on Johnny B. Good. But then uh, some of the weaker enemies and stuff that you fight is Tequila, yeah. <laughs> Later on in the game, when you're walking through Dungeon Man, one of the items that you actually end up using to move on in the story is uh, the purely coincidental yellow submarine that is found inside of him that you use to travel. You know, the Starman enemy is supposedly named off of the David Bowie song Starman. The final sanctuary boss is Carbon Dog, but as you fight him long enough, he becomes Diamond Dog, which is another Bowie reference. Even like early on in the first town, you can knock on different doors and people inside will say things to you and stuff. But one of my favorites, they'll say, complete the name of this Beatles song. And it says XXX today. And the only options are yes or no. <laughs> so it's just another way to slip in a, another reference. When you're putting in your names, you can hear part of the Monty Python flying circus theme in the background. There's a ton of references in the game. One that I kind of learned about not too long ago, just by chance, I was listening to uh, some ELO, and to me it sounds very much like when you're flying the uh, the Skyrunner. There's just, I mean, a lot of different references. You're going to hear all kinds of different music that is clearly a reference to another song. Rich, did you catch any in particular? No, not really, besides the few that Adam mentioned, especially the submarine. It's funny, you find it in this like little museum that's underground, <laughs> and it says something about, oh, well, it is a yellow submarine, but, you know, that's just pure coincidence. <laughs> the game in itself, and something we didn't really mention before, has a lot of humor in it, and it's funny, it's quirky, and just really cute. With uh, shmups, you have cute em ups With this, is sort of like a cute RPG, which we also saw when we played Rhapsody, and even to a certain extent, Magical Star Sign. But as far as the music, I kind of feel like it falls into two categories. There's this sort of lighthearted, fun music, and then there's the dire music, which Sean was mentioning. The lighthearted stuff is sort of like a salsa, reggae, and some dub. It's kind of playful and groovy, whereas the more dire music is sort of sci-fi and electronic. One of the developers was Hip Tanaka. I hear 
these echoes of Metroid in a lot of that music. It's very eerie and uh, kind of gives you that sort of isolated feel, which obviously is a real throwback to Metroid. I think the music fits the game for the most part. Some of the battles, some of the music's a little happy, which is kind of strange, though. <laughs> You're a kid with a baseball bat that's beating up on bums, hippies, and dogs. So, I mean, what's more strange than that? But um, for the soundtrack, I think it's really above average. Sorry, Adam, I don't think it's anything that I would go out of my way to like purchase on vinyl. I know you have a copy of it, and I know how much you love the game, and so that's not an insult to you, but it's something that I can definitely appreciate. And when listening to the soundtrack, it was over three hours long. I mean, that is a lot of effort into a game. So, uh, you know, my hat's off to them. Also, speaking of sounds, the localization of this game is fantastic with a lot of games that are brought over from Japan. Sometimes there's some quirkiness to the localization and everything's not translated well. But with this game, I thought they did a fantastic job. And the humor is really good even with today's standards, you know. Yeah, I agree with you strongly on this one, Rich. I really enjoyed the localization here. And um, there's like Simpson-y jokes in the game. And also I just like the sprinkles of flavor text throughout the game. Like sometimes when you level up, if one of your stats goes up like more than one point, it says, oh, baby, you know, <laughs> your, your guts went up three points. And it's like, oh, that's so funny that it says, oh, baby, on the screen. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I think that really adds to it that they just peppered in a little bit of slang, some, you know, <laughs> dialect into the game. I thought that was really cool. Your HP went up by 20. That rocks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, there is one thing that I want to talk about, and it's real quick, is that enemies that are a significantly lower level than you, you don't have to actually fight the battle, which is one of yeah. the more well-known mechanics in this game, which is pretty cool. However, if you're just playing the game normally and progressing through the story as I was, I find that that doesn't happen too often. I think it's more when you're like backtracking through areas that you've been to before. It is a quality of life factor in a game that doesn't have a great many quality of life factors. So <laughs> I thought that was pretty cool. But is there anything else from you guys before we roll into final thoughts that you think should be on the table? That was something that I forgot to mention when Richard, you were talking about the enemies being on screen. You see them all. They're not, you know, just hidden characters right. or hidden enemies that draw you into a battle screen. When you run into an enemy, it's typically a blue swirl that comes out. But if you are able to sneak up on the enemy or attack them from behind, you get a green screen, which gives you basically a bonus attack before they can. But if they do the same and they catch you from behind, then it's a red swirl and they get to attack first. If you can get the enemies turning the right way or moving in the right direction, you can still use the environment to sneak up on them and try and change how the battle is going to play out as well. And also, with the enemies being on screen, you can use that to your advantage because they are also limited by the same sort of obstacles in the environment that you are. There's trees and rocks and things like that that are in your way physically that you can't walk through, but the enemies can't either, so you can... Use that to your advantage, especially like on your way out to the Peaceful Rest Valley where those oak trees are just awful. But you can get them to get stuck or hung up on one of the environmental pieces and avoid that battle. Yeah, and to kind of piggyback on that, there's something else you can do, Sean, because I, I know you're wanting to try to finish the game. But you can also use like screen manipulation, whereas if you run up on 
certain enemy types that you don't want to battle or there are too many of them in a row because we have to mention that when you go into battle if there are nearby enemies there is a time limit of where they will flow into the battle and if they get there within that time limit you have to fight multiple enemies but what you can do is you can screen manipulate enemies and if you see them let's say they're on the left side and you don't want to battle those, you can go back to the right side of the screen, but be careful you don't go too far to the right or you'll run into more enemies. And then you can go back and it will reset what enemies that you are up against. And sometimes there'll be like a group of three and I will go off screen and come back and there'll be one enemy there instead. So sometimes it makes some of the areas a little easier to get through. The same kind of uh, effect happens when you're going through doorways as yeah. well. If you don't move, the enemies won't move. So if, if you can hit left to leave a room, if you walk in and there's a bunch of enemies there, you can hit left, leave the room, and it, none of the enemies will come towards you to try and battle. Um, so you can try and kind of manipulate that as well. One other thing real quick that kind of adds to the humor is there's a good amount of breaking the fourth wall in this game. Like in the police station, if you go talk to somebody, they're like, Come back and talk to me when you've beaten Earthbound. When you get to Foresight, there's a building that's closed. But if you look at the sign out front, basically it says that that's Ape Inc., which is the company that developed the game, and they're holding an Earthbound 2 meeting. And so that's their company in the game that they're they're actively working on the sequel. Yeah, and another moment in the game, you have to enter your name. And so <laughs> when you get to the end, it actually thanks you personally for playing the game, which is kind of cool. Cool. All right, well... I guess we're ready to kind of roll into our final thoughts and we're definitely going to save Adam for last. And I think I should probably go first because uh, I probably have the least to say as far as my completion of the game. So this was still a fun playthrough for me because I have been wanting to play this game for a while. It's always intrigued me because of its mystique from the collector's standpoint. I just feel like this is one of those games where you go back and play it and you're like, oh, this game would have been great if I played it in 1996 over like a summer and was able to talk about it with my friends as I was playing it, which I was kind of doing with you guys, but under a kind of too strict of a time limit. If I had time to, which now I do, the recording's over so I can kind of take <laughs> it at my leisure for the rest of the game. If I could have been that way the whole time, I think I would have enjoyed it a lot more. Of course, you know, my frustrations coming across in a text message it seems way worse than it actually was. For the most part, I've enjoyed myself to a great extent while playing this game. It's just some of those annoyances that were starting to get to me, again, imposed by the time limit that I felt I was under. I definitely recommend this game if you can pick it up digitally. I'm not sure if it warrants a price point for an original cart that is approaching now 300-ish dollars at the time of this recording. Loose. <laughs> for a loose copy. And I got to tell you, I've never been more tempted to actually sell my copy because I'm kind of realizing as I go through this journey, to put it in a corny term, of deciding what games I really, really need to have on the shelf and which ones I don't. This game doesn't hold any nostalgia to me. I only wanted to get my hands on it because it was sought after and valuable. And I think now having played it, it's like this copy of this game, again, would be better off in someone else's hands. And I will 
probably just sell it to hopefully somebody will enjoy owning the physical version more than I will because I didn't even play my card. I played it on the Wii U, you know what I mean? So <laughs> yeah. um, for whatever frustrations I had, it's a really cool game. It's fun. The music is really neat. And again, I'm hoping to just kind of play it now at a more relaxing pace. It may take me a very long time to beat it, but um, I intend to stick with it. For me, I'm glad we played it for the playthrough because it is one of those games that's like, am I ever going to play this weird game that I only got for its collector's value? And But it's like so intriguing to me, the present day setting, the graphics, the music, and all the little quirky side stories with the development and... You know, this kind of singular vision from Etoy and everything else going on there. It's just a very intriguing and interesting game all around. It's just so funny to me that just last month on the recording, I was literally like, let's flex on who owns a copy of Earthbound. And now I'm like, <laughs> oh, I've actually like cleared my head on why I don't need to own a copy of Earthbound. And yet I like the game and want to complete it and finish it. So you can't talk about Earthbound without talking about the like collector's aspect of it. Mm-hmm. But to kind of wrap up my final thoughts here. Really cool game. It's not the greatest RPG I've ever played, but it's it's just so unique, colorful, cheeky, funny, and all that kind of stuff. So I think anybody who has the means should check it out. It's easier to play now than it ever has been. You don't have to buy a $300 Super Nintendo game to play it. So I'll kick it over to you, Rich. And um, also, I don't have any like statement on the final battle. I just watched it on YouTube. So... If you want to talk about that and then roll into your final thoughts. Absolutely. I want to start off saying that I really enjoyed this game so much that I finished it in five days. I started on a Wednesday and finished it that same Sunday. It really got its hooks into me very early. And it's funny because, as I had mentioned before, I had played through half of this game. So a lot of it was just sort of refreshing my memory at the beginning and hoping that I could get over that hurdle that stopped me from playing the last time. I didn't run into any hurdles this time. It's very strange. And I know we talked about you having to grind in this game, but I never had to grind. I just took the battles as they came and made sure that I fought every battle. For me, it was rather linear. But yeah, I really enjoyed this game. Like you said, Sean, the humor in it is spot on. It's quirky. You rarely play an RPG that you're going to start laughing. Most RPGs are so dreadful and dire, you're trying to save the world. In this game, you're trying to do the same thing. And there are dire moments in the game, but overall, the humorous aspect of the game overwhelms any negativity in the game, and I think that's what really makes this game special. I want to talk about the final boss battle for just a bit. I did feel like there was a huge difficulty spike at the end of this game, and I actually had to look up tips because there are a few abilities in the game. One of them is Prey, and the other is the spell called Shield. With the other boss battles in the game, I was able to just power through with melee and attacking and healing. But in the final battle, you can't do that. And it kind of threw me for a loop, and I lost the final battle a few times, and actually had to look at a guide 
to help me through it. And the final battle is you using prey to get help from other people, and then mainly using the shields of Ness and Pooh on your characters to help bring down the damage that you're going to take. And as you're using those, you're also throwing out heals. Really what you're doing is you're praying, and you're also just trying to keep your players alive. And the only attack that you really use is Jeff, which is odd in itself, as Sean pointed out, about how that character's not very strong. But you use the super bombs and the bottle rockets, which take off a fairly significant amount of damage, plus the damage that you get from praying. So it's a very odd battle at the end. It's extremely long. There are so many different phases of it. But when you get to the end, you know, it is gratifying finally beating the game. Another thing I wanted to address with this game is, you know, is some people might wonder why this game is called Mother, and I'm going to have to defer to Adam on this, but from what I understand, I did a little research, and in the first game there is a bit of a twist that I'm not going to spoil or ruin for anyone, but there is a bit of a twist to define why the game is called Mother, and probably why they didn't use that when they brought it to the U.S., so... The name Mother doesn't really make any sense in the context of this game, but if you've played the first one, there is a moment in that game where it does make sense, and that's where the series gets its name from. Um, one of the neat things about the game at the end is when you beat Gygas, it doesn't immediately end. You go back home and you talk <laughs> to your mother and she asks you, are you ready to end your game or not? And you can go back into the game and do other quests. I know Adam's played this game a lot. He's probably done all these extra quests. One that I did was I bought the house. And other than the photograph, yes, I don't know <laughs> how that impacts the end of the game. So I'm going to kick it over to him in a second. But I just want to say that I really, really enjoyed this game. I'm so glad I played through it. I do agree with Sean a bit in that it's probably not a game you want to buy right now, especially in today's market. But if it goes back down to the 100, 150 range, I think it's well worth adding to your collection if you are a collector. But like we said, you can find different alternatives to play it on. So yeah, enjoyed it. Adam, this is your favorite game. We brought you on the show because we know that you're the man for Earthbound, so I'm dying to hear your final thoughts here. When I was taking notes and writing things down for this episode, I was concerned at certain points that I was just going to start rambling. And as you guys have both mentioned, this is my favorite game of all time. For a lot of reasons, by no means, I'm not going to tell you that this is a perfect RPG. I think some of the stuff that's really helped draw me in initially and then kept me enjoying the game and then coming back to it over and over honestly started with the setting. This is a non-traditional setting for an RPG, but it's based in a town that you could see as a small town in America. At the time I grew up in a small town, pretty similar. You know, I live in the suburbs of Kansas city that actually, you know, really hit home for me. I've always enjoyed the humor. The music has kept me around for a long time. 
I mean, I didn't buy the vinyls to listen to them. I've got the, all the stuff digitally. They're essentially going to be display pieces just because I enjoy the game so much. The house that you buy has absolutely nothing to do with anything in the game. You get nothing for buying it except for you bought a house and then you go inside and it's just trashed. <laughs> There's an entire wall missing. Not counting the one that you have, the fourth wall there. You just bought this junk house. There's all this sort of just extra stuff that I think adds to the quirkiness, but also the polish of the game by making it seem more like an everyday type of town to live in. But as you progress and you start seeing more and more weird stuff, it gets pretty serious at times. There are some tough battles. For example, in Foresight, you're fighting an enemy that you knock him down to a certain HP, but then the Runaway Five, who you've helped out twice at this point, come and make the final blow. Just more of a... Tying the world together, showing how the friends that you make along the way really do help out as you're progressing through this mission that you're on to save the world. To talk about the final boss battle, how good is that tune when you're fighting Pokey before he leaves? It starts off kind of slow and everything, and then it just kicks onto this hard-rocking riff that you really haven't heard much of throughout the entire game. Another level of where that music is leading you to this very serious battle, and then it drops you to this track that is trippy, just like the background is when you're first starting to fight against Gygus. The Prey stuff, when you're fighting the final boss, is basically saying that you're not doing much damage, and he's attacking and hitting hard, and it's almost like you're down to your last resort of what you can possibly do. You don't really have to attack at all. You can defeat him without attacking with Jeff, Pooh, or Ness. He effectively, once you get to that point, does not have an HP meter. You have to survive those rounds with Paula praying every round. It's the game of survive long enough to pray through and see all these people that you've met. I still get chills when I beat the game. I'm not sure if it's just purely nostalgia or what exactly it is, but this game is really just a very special game for me. And like Rich was saying, I mean, once you've beaten the final boss, the game's not over. Pooh goes back home. Jeff stays with his dad and before you beat the game, you have to escort Paula back home. Along with that, you can teleport to every single town in the game, and every person will have different dialogue. Or at least a lot of people will have you know different dialogue as far as what they're saying to you after the game is over. If you go to the library early on, you can check out a town map. Now that the game's over, you can actually return the town map to the library. Stuff that doesn't mean anything... It doesn't have any kind of impact on the story, but it's just another kind of layer to make this crazy, wacky world feel grounded in reality. I can't say enough about it. It's flat out just my favorite game of all time. You hit on something there. I think the game is really about community. Like you said, even in the final battle, when you're praying to everyone you've met along the way and you've built relationships with and helped out, actually helps you in that final battle. And so... It is sort of the perfect way to end the game. I think with RPGs, we are just so spoiled by having these epic boss battles at the end, whereas this one actually asks you to hold back, which is really strange, but in the context of the game, makes a lot of sense. All right, well, let's roll into our games that we're playing for August and September. Rich, you already alluded to our August games, but refresh everybody's memory what they should be playing. Yeah, in August, we're going to be playing some really neat rhythm games on the DS, Elite Beat Agents and Rhythm Heaven. 
As I think I mentioned in the last call, the only rhythm game that I have ever played really is Parappa the Rapper. So I've already sunk some time into Elite Beat Agents and have enjoyed my time with it. So I do hope that people will join us in this playthrough. It's not an intense playthrough. Fairly quick on both ends and should be a nice end of summer playthrough for everyone. Awesome. Yeah, I've dabbled in both these games and I'm excited to play a more low stakes kind of playthrough as far as involvement. And I do intend to try to beat these games, but I know how rhythm games work and yeah. they get they can get extremely difficult as you go on. Even so. easy isn't that easy. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Man, Elite Beat, it's a great game, but if you don't get that play system down, it can be a rough go. Yeah, and I'm wary of games that make me smash my stylus on the touchscreen because I like to preserve my equipment. So <laughs> we'll see uh, how crazy I get playing them. As far as September, though, we're playing a Microsoft game, which I, as I think about it, we really don't give Microsoft enough love over the years. And uh, we are playing an Xbox 360 game called Gears of War. Not sure if our listeners have heard of this one, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> it's a game I've been kind of bugging Rich to play for a while just because, Rich, I know you have an Xbox 360, but quite famously, you've stated that you never play it. And I think Bayonetta is the only game you've ever complete. No, you played Bayonetta on PS3. What I was did? the game? There was like one game. Maybe it was Fable 2 recently. That you said was the only game you ever played on the 360. So I love the Gears franchise. I've talked about this a little bit in the past. And I thought this would be a good opportunity to introduce Rich to the franchise. And also for me to play the Gears of War Remastered Edition on the Xbox One. Which I'm looking forward to checking out. So in September it's the original Gears of War. Whether you want to play the original 360 version or the remastered version, you're welcome to join us. So at this point I want to just thank Adam for joining us. And Adam, is there anywhere online that you want people to be able to find you or anything that you're working on that you want to share? I'm on Twitter at BigMan2K. If you want to talk Earth Founder, anything else. I also run the Art Generation Twitter account as well. The stuff that gets posted, for the most part, is automated, but occasionally I'll chime in with the actual site account. Other than that, we're trying to get some back-end software stuff done, and hopefully it'll make things a little bit easier. It's just a lot of boring stuff that needs to be done, probably needed to be done for a long time. It's just a matter of everybody's a volunteer, and it's just tough to find time. Well, it's all good. And you say it's boring, but, you know, sometimes we have to high five the behind the scenes people, you know, and we can have YouTubers and podcasters and band members on our show. But, you know, you're running RFGeneration.com and that's where all of us hang out and talk about <laughs> collecting and video games and stuff like that. So really appreciate your work and um, really happy to have you on the show today and really appreciate your time. Yeah, second that. Oh, yeah, you bet. Thanks for having me on. Uh, one more quick thing, if anybody else wants to join in and, and chat with any of us, too, the Arv Generation does have a Discord. If you just go to arvgeneration.com, there's a link there to join the Discord. Oh!
up another episode thank you as always for listening and a special thanks to all of our participants and to bickman 2k for joining us in our discussion in august get ready to bring your nintendo ds on vacation as we look at two classic rhythm-based titles on the mighty handheld get into the groove with elite beat agents and rhythm heaven for a musical double dose of fun Be sure to log on to the forums at rfgeneration.com to join the playthrough, and we'll see you next time on the Playcast. Basketball. Bow. Bow. Blah, blah, bling, blame